Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today's show is the best. Seriously, it's a really good one today. Um, before we get started on this action-packed, almost two-hour interview over just basically taking you straight to shock school, I'm going to ask one thing of you. If you haven't liked this on Facebook or Instagram, please do that. And I'm going to ask a second thing. Wherever you're choosing to listen to your audio, if you don't mind leaving us a review, it helps us get noticed immensely. It's very, very, very effective for us. So thank you for doing that. Um, the other thing that I want to talk to you about is Supergrip ATV. Uh, Supergrip ATV, if you don't know, is pretty much taking the entire market by storm right now. Supergrip ATV K9 tire. Uh, it's it just, I mean, I know you've heard of it. That's how that's how confident I am. The Supergrip ATV K9 is a rugged, all-terrain. ATV and UTV tire designed to get you through the most extreme terrains. The K9 features an 8-ply rated radial construction with excellent rubber compounds for your on-road and off-road adventures. To expound on that a little bit, uh, the on-road and off-road, if that's the situation that you find yourself in more often than not, I personally would highly recommend the standard compound. That's the compound that I run. It's a little bit more firm than their intermediate compound, but it performs excellent. Performs just as well as every other soft compound tire I've ever had. Now, the other side of that coin, the intermediate. Uh, the intermediate tire is a softer version of the standard uh, standard material tire, standard compound, excuse me. Um, it's just going to provide you more traction in the rocks, but the life expectancy, although very long, will be slightly shorter than the standard compound. The K9 is the ultimate control on or off-road. All K9 tires come with a Kevlar option. Kevlar is a synthetic fiber that is about five times stronger than steel. Kevlar, when used in tires, is uh, incredibly, incredibly strong because what it actually does is it lowers the weight when you pull out all that rubber and the extra steel belting and, and rubber belting, however the company chooses to do it, the Kevlar actually makes the tire lighter and stronger. Kevlar's ability to deflect glass and other sharp objects defend the tube against puncture, which makes this already extremely tough sidewall and extremely rugged tire even stronger. I highly recommend it if your budget can go for it. Go for the Supergrip ATV K9 Kevlar tire. You can check those out at supergripatv.com, supergripatv on Facebook and Instagram, as well as reach out to your favorite retailer. They're a hot commodity, so they may not have them in stock, but more is always coming soon. The show is also brought to you by Dinojet. Dinojet has supplied me with a stage two power package for my Polaris Razor. Let me tell you, I have never had a clutch upgrade system that was so easy to install and really didn't need any alter alteration after the fact. Every single clutch kit that I've installed previous to my Dinojet kit, it took a long time and it wasn't exactly what I wanted by the time it was all said and done. It just never seemed to hit the mark or never seemed to hit the mark. Uh, some of the features that you can expect when you get your stage two kit like I did, you can expect cooler belt temperatures for a longer belt life, optimized back shifting, faster acceleration from your vehicle, 
and you can adjust it for different terrains and different tire sizes. You make those adjustments in the clutch flyouts. So one really cool thing, and probably in my opinion, the coolest part of the entire thing is that your car becomes, your clutch system becomes forever tunable. You never ever have to worry again about having to purchase another clutch set or ordering different weights for the application you're gonna use. Dynajet sends you a boatload of weights and magnets and all kinds of other things to make sure that if you make a move from 30 inch tall tires to 37 inch tall tires, they've got you figured out and you have it just by changing the weights. You can also expect to see performance gains. Their stage one package already gives your UTV an extra boost, a 15 horsepower gain, uh, just using their performance tune. The stage two makes sure that your UTV's hardware can handle all that power. Their clutch kit not only allows for faster acceleration, but they also create, like I said earlier, cooler belt temperatures. Also, between the Power Vision 3, they can hold multiple custom tombs at one time, and their unlimited customizable clutch kit, your UTV will become equipped for any adventure, whether it's the racetrack, the dunes, or rock crawling. You'll be moving through any obstacle with ease from one day to the next. That's DinoJet.com, DinoJet Research Inc. on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out through them for their website on the support, and also DinoJet Matt on all social media. Our next sponsor is Infinite Off-Road, home of the 25-year You Break It, I'm sorry, <laughs> 25 year, you break it, they replace it warranty. Infinite Off-Road is my oldest sponsor. Always glad to have these guys on here because not only do they make an extremely quality product that I personally have never had to have warrantied or anything like that, but the warranty is always there. The thing that really gets me is they cover accidental damage. Say for example, me, a UTV guy, I'm in my Razor, I've got some lights on the front of my bumper, they're out in the open, they get exposed, and all of a sudden exposure means they get hit by a tree. That is covered in the warranty. If I accidentally run my car into a tree, I will get warrantied lights. Let that sink in, folks. Infinite Off-Road manufactures rock lights, uh, light whips, wheel rings, light bars, light pods, wiring and power controllers, and all applications for UTV, Jeeps, and trucks. So this can go on your tow rig, and this can go on your crawler, and it can go on your UTV. The rock lights are the brightest, including a red, green, blue, and independent white light, white light unit within the rock light. I highly recommend them. They're very, very cool. Their whips are really, really cool, and their whips actually run off of the Rocklight controller, so it's an all-in-one system. Infinite Off-Road has been super cool, too, because not only have they stepped up to give you guys one of the best products ever, but they believe in the show the same way that the rest of our sponsors do. They've offered you a discount code of 10% off, code word ROCKS at checkout, R-O-C-K-S, at infiniteoffroad.com, Infinite Off-Road on Facebook and Instagram. Last but not least, I have to give a super big shout out to our newest sponsor. Diddy's Big Block Race Shop joins the Racing on the Rocks family. Diddy's Big Block Race Shop, which is on Instagram and Facebook, I highly recommend you guys give them a follow. They offer a variety of services nationwide, specializing in suspension tuning, shock maintenance, full buggy builds, or finishing out your buggy build, wiring and plumbing, and truly specializing in the final touches to help you complete your rig. 
Now, some of the suspension services are including, but not limited to, shock tuning, which is on-site tuning sessions that are available, shock revalving, send your shocks in, valve your application to your specs, and even full repair and full rebuilding. Tear down, clean, replace seals, any damaged parts, and fresh oil. Uh, Chris over at Diddy's Big Block will also have specced shocks that you can buy in a complete shop application or shock application for your rig. Coilover springs, he can help you get set up with correct spring rates for your application as well. And speaking of buggy builds, he does roller packages, two or four seats from partially committed racing. Those are the chassis that he uses with your components of choice. He also offers full turnkey builds, once again, a partially committed racing chassis, or if you have a chassis that needs to be finished out, they can take it all the way to completion. On the wiring and plumbing side, complete buggy wiring with cleanup and straighten out existing wiring or starting with a blank canvas. Brake and hydraulic systems including hydraulic lines built in house, cut to length and crimped to fit properly. Brake lights ran using braided lines where needed and hard lines built to fit cleanly. He also will do cooling systems. This really is your one-stop shop if you're looking to have your buggy finished out or if you're looking to have your shock serviced, which are very rare, two very rare things to find on the East Coast. So Diddy's Big Block, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Diddy's Big Block Race Shop. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. And one more thing before we close out, they are your number one source for Mark Williams off-road parts. They've worked with Mark Williams to help expand them into the off-road world, and that includes 14-bolt spools for the GM 30, 35, and 40 spline options, yokes for 14 bolts, Atlas transfer cases, Dana 60s, and Ford 9 inches, full-flow axle shafts and dry flange kits, 14 bolts, Dana 60s, and 70s, lightweight brake kits for 14 bolts, Chevys, and Ford Kingpin knuckles, uh, just about everything, and even custom unit bearing cups to accept an 05 and up Ford unit bearing, 300M and 4340 axle shafts and brake kits to go with them. So pretty much everything you need. If you need something for your full size buggy or if you need your shocks tuned, this is an excellent gentleman to do business with. I have did business with, excuse me, I did business with him before he became a sponsor of the show. We were already in discussion and, and, and the bridge just got built there. So I highly recommend just from my experience dealing with Chris over at Diddy's Big Block Race Shop. Okay, today's show is awesome. And I, I know I say that a lot, um, but this one's really good. This is a lot of information about shock tuning all the way down to the fine levels of how to shim your shocks correctly. Uh, you'll hear a little bit of theory. You'll hear a little bit of CAD talk. If you're listening to the audio version only, I highly recommend that you check out some of the screenshots that are posted online with the quote-unquote announcement posts. So without further ado, one of your heroes and one of mine, Jake Berkey from Busted Knuckle Off-Road. Get a drink and gather around. Let's talk drivers. Let's talk rigs. Let's talk skill. You've got the best of the best in the off-road racing world. Have a seat at the table with us and let's talk about racing on the rocks. And we are live. Jake Berkey in the house. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing just fine, man. Just constantly working and getting stuff done. And just like every other night, man, we're still down here getting it done. Yeah, when you when you sent me a message, it, you you know we were kind of scheduling everything. You were talking about seven o'clock. I was like, that is spot on because that's right when I'm going to finish my day. Uh, I got a chance to make some dinner, and I was like, I know that this guy's still in the shop, still working. So, oh yeah, uh, thanks for making some time for me. Yeah, for, for sure. sure, man. 
I got to say, before we get started, you were, uh, you and Matt are my two most popular interviews I've ever really? done. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So you guys, your, your fan base has definitely showed up. In fact, I actually sent Matt a message last week. He's been my top interview for the last month. So seriously, that's yeah, awesome. It's been really cool. It's been very, very cool to have you guys that's on. Great. Yeah, it, it was it was cool. Uh, the first interview that you and I did, we talked a lot about um, what you guys are working on, where you're headed as a business and kind of the backstory behind the business. And then I got Matt on and I got his side of the story. And it's really, really great to have you both on. But uh, yeah. today I have a lot to learn. We did a little bit of pre-discussion, so I'm just excited to get this ball rolling. But okay. before we talk into the tech talk, how you doing? What you been up to? Man, everything's going great. We're actually just, uh, I mean, we're rolling out buggies left and right. We're finishing up on a really ridiculous buggy that we're working on now. It's a pro-charged uh, Ford motor. It's got the biggest pro-charger, pro-charger make strapped to a 351 Windsor with like all the bells and whistles, dart block, Brodix heads. I mean, it's like a 1500 horsepower small block Ford that's going to be just an absolute monster. Yeah. It's on 46s with, you know, this uh, chromoly housing Meritor planetary gear reduction thing. I mean, <laughs> the axles and stuff are ridiculous. The yeah. fabrication's over the top and like we are just tearing it down this week to go to powder. So in the next like two and a half weeks, three weeks, we'll have it all back together and you guys will be able to see some really cool pictures of this thing all dolled up. Yeah. It's funny. I actually saw, I saw something floating around Facebook and someone had tagged you in a comment about, are these the kind of axles that you're using? And you replied back with what kind you were using. I had to go look them up and yeah. man, what are they called? Because they're a masterpiece of engineering. These are called Meritor axles and they're actually from an MRAP. So it's a mine resistant personnel carrier, basically, that's uh, designed to just basically run over a landmine, have an explosion and not tear up the axles and continue driving. Well, they start life super heavy. They're 1900 pounds. And we knew that we wanted the strength, but we didn't want the weight. So uh, we contracted a guy to help us out with that. Uh, it's um, you might know or seen the, the the show Death Wish that we do now. Well, the yeah. guy who's on there with a cowboy hat, his name is Josh Maserol, and he helped us design them. And between myself and Josh and CAD, we came up with these things and we built them and got them installed. And uh, they're now de-braked, so they have a lot less weight because the brakes are like three hundred pounds a piece. Yeah. Um, and then we had chromoly housings built for them. Then we had aluminum hubs built for them. And when it was all said and done, we're at 830 pounds with the steering and everything from 1900. So we were able to lose 1100 pounds just by doing all that stuff. And they're basically right on par with like the weight of a Dana 80, but uh -huh. they're rated for seven tons instead of being a Dana 80, which is a one ton axle. So now, it's kind of amazing to have something that weighs that close, but has that much strength. Yeah, that's so it seems like that would be an obvious choice. Now, the big question is, does the price of it outweigh, you know, is, is it worth it? Is, 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 this a, is this an efficient thing to do or is this a one off? You know, you're probably not going to do it again situation. Um, I'm probably not going to build these again. Um, and the only reason is like, don't get me wrong. They're awesome. And they are absolutely worth pursuing from somebody else. But I am trying to take my business in a different direction. And, um, and these just don't fit in that envelope. Um, they're really awesome. Don't get me wrong. They're super strong, but even though they weigh about as much as a Dana 80, a Dana 80 weighs too much already. 
So that's where I'm at. I want to build race car stuff and, uh, you know, I want to go a little bit faster in order to go faster. You got to be lighter and the obvious place to trim some weights on the axles. And so, you know, we've already proven that our axles can hold up to 15 and 1600 horsepower rigs. Um, so we're going to try to make them a little bit lighter now, maybe do some chromoly stuff on eighties and even cut those down some more. So we're kind of in that, that stage between, you know, you know, those are kind of for the guy who wants to go out and just absolutely whoop the dog crap out of an axle and never have a failure. Um, and, and that's the axle for you. But, uh, I think that, uh, for us, we want to try to go a little bit sexier, a little bit faster, a little bit lighter on the next one. So is this a, is it, is the one, the person you're building this for, are they plan on racing it or is this just a, you know, kind of trail just personal? No, it's, it's a trail rig. It's a, you know, 1500 horsepower, gigantic supercharged trail rig. He doesn't plan on doing any racing. He just doesn't want it to break. And that's what we delivered. You know, we delivered an axle that's rated for seven tons and he'll be able to beat this thing mercilessly and not have to ever worry about anything on the axles. That's that's amazing. And I have a lot of respect for somebody who just wants to literally hand you, you know, tell you what you need or get told what they need and just say, hey, build it where it won't break and just, you know, let it be done there. So I think. That's right. Awesome. That's my favorite customer, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure. Yeah. It is. Here's my checkbook. Uh, Make it awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, you brought you brought up the fact that you guys are building uh, 15, 1600 horsepower buggies. Um, obviously, that brings to mind Gold Rush. I had a question last week when I was talking to uh, Anthony Yant, and uh, it was, it seems like Gold Rush in the, it, just in its its short time that's been alive here, um, it's it's been like small tweaking issues here and there that have kind of kept it from unleashing the um, the maximum capability that it has. Do you think that this season is going to be the season where we really see, you know, kind of those little small bugs like, you know, switches being in uh, in, in place of a hand and things like that? Uh, is this the season where Gold Rush is really just dialed in? And we're going to get to see what 1600 horsepower really looks like, man. I hope so. Um, Shane is about the only person who has worse luck than I do. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, man, every I feel bad for him. I really do. Yeah. Like he's on his way to the trail and he has blowouts on his trailers like I used to. He gets there and like the fuel injection systems just not working properly and it's acting yeah. up and then he gets that figured out and he starts to race and a tire blows or it's just always something he's got belt issues or he's got, you know, fuel injection issues or he's got this or that. And, you know, that's part of having a rig that's got that much power. And the more power you put into a rig, the less likelihood you have of it running perfectly every time. And it's sure. what we call horsepower hours. Every engine has a certain amount of hours that it'll run. You could take a, you could take that motor and put it at 400 horsepower and it'll run for the rest of its life. You go to 800, that time is reduced. You go to 1200, that time severely reduced. And, and when you get it at 1600 horsepower, you're pushing the envelopes of what that engine's capable of. And you're right on the brink of whether it's going to have failures or not. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy because it's not just the engine itself. It's everything that surrounds that engine too. I mean, you know, we've got axles that are capable of holding that horsepower, but you know, that Dana 80 can hold 800 horsepower for the rest of its life, but how long can it hold 1600 horsepower? Yeah. And that's the stuff that we're learning with these buggies. They're just, they're on another level. They really are with the power and nobody's ever done it before. And there's a lot of stuff to learn each time we get into it. And Shane's just getting faster and faster. He's actually third in Southern rock racing. So, yeah. well, that's, yeah. that's, that was my point was like, he's having all these minor inconveniences, but he's still, I mean, he's right yeah. there. 
every he's right there. And, and it's just at any at any day, all it's going to take is for his luck to click and he's going to be up there on the podium. And, and it's just one of those things where he just has bad enough luck that he doesn't have one of those days. <laughs> I feel yeah, bad for him. Yeah. I really do. I feel and, terrible and, for him. Man, I, I saw a couple runs. Like there was a run at Mid-America. And, dude, he just – I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I may be misremembering, but it just was flawless, absolutely yeah. flawless. And it just made me think, wait until that machine gets all its little little things, little issues here and there, gets it dialed out, and, and that thing runs clean runs, you know, predictable clean runs. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we're opening another gate. We're opening another it, door. It I, I don't think that Shane's walked through it yet because of these small bugs, but I think once he gets in the other side of that door, it's it's a whole different game. Yeah. Yeah. And Shane and I, we, we stay in touch a lot, you know, and we talk about everything. Every time he makes a run, you know, afterwards he calls me and we talk about his suspension and we'll change a few things here and there. And then we'll play around with some stuff and he'll go run it again. And, mm-hmm. you know, about sometimes he calls me up and just says, Hey, the buggy was acting up. And then sometimes he'll call me up and just say, man, you know, I, I deserve it. I, I screwed up. Like, dude, you know, when he was at, um, where was it? It was up there in Winrock. Mm-hmm. And he took off from the bottom of the hill and was going towards the finish line. And he was only like, I want to say one or two seconds off of Timmy. And he gets up there to the top and goes to hit his shifter and just turns the buggy off. Yeah. And that would have been a podium run, you know? And the, the, I mean, he's had a bunch of runs that he has basically stopped at the finish line uh, in Texas. He jumps up to the top and something happened up there at the top. I think he didn't realize which direction to go and just like mm-hmm. stopped before the finish line. And he had yeah. a smoking run, you know, and it's just, you know, it's a little bit of driver learning. It's a little bit of buggy learning. It's a little bit of, you know, horsepower and, uh, you know, all the different recipe that goes together. And, you know, he'll get it dialed in. It just got to st- just got to hang in there and keep on working on it. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I'm just the reason I, I've been asking lately is because you see it and you, and you see that one run that's perfect. And you're just like, mm-hmm. that's going to be it. It just takes time. So yep. I'm always curious. Uh, he's but, fast. He's getting faster too. Yeah. Well, you can see it. And it just, even when you go back and you watch the runs, I watched a live stream from uh, the, the rock racing series race a couple weeks ago. And it was just, it was, it was good. Everything looked good. And you just go back and you watch it and you're like, okay, this driver from last year is significantly better. Absolutely. There's, there's, it's the little things that you see. The skips look smoother. Everything looks, you know, the lines look better. I'm, I'm, that's why I'm just, I'm getting excited. Cause I think that we're right on the cusp of, of him being right there with everybody. Uh, yeah. and really, really being able to show out. Yep. This past weekend, he actually tied for third place with Anthony Yant in points. Mm-hmm. Um, but Anthony Yant had a faster time overall. So Anthony Yant got the podium and that's why in all the pictures you see Shane over there holding up fourth <laughs> place next to the podium, you know? Um, yeah. but you know, he, he is, he's right there and he's, He's in a situation where he doesn't have to have much go better for him to be really on fire. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and that kind of leads me to uh, you guys recently pushed out this amazing, beautiful buggy uh, with green, beautiful powder coat. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What made it special for you? Uh, so that buggy was uh, a really cool project. Um, we were actually in Rome and uh, we had flown from Rome delivering a buggy at, in Rome to a customer of ours. It, it was an Italian buggy and we delivered that over there. Then we flew up to England and we were there in the airport when we got a message from a guy named Glenn and he wanted this buggy built. 
And he was one of those guys where he just like trusted me. He just said, look, man, I want you to make it awesome. And uh, I don't really care about the cost. I want to just make it as bad as possible. And I just want it to be top notch. And if you give me that and let me run with it, I'm going to produce something that's just amazing. And we've got a team over here that can really just produce anything that my mind can come up with. So we'll sit down and we'll start talking about how we want to do the dash and everything. And then I'll come up with an overall concept and I'll talk to him about how I want the whole thing to be laid out. And like mm-hmm. my guys are like reading my mind and getting this stuff knocked out. And, you know, yeah. between myself and them, I, I do a lot of the sheet metal work. They do a lot of the sheet metal work. We do a lot of, you know, working together on all this stuff without them, we couldn't do it. But it's really special to me because it's the third or fourth buggy in a row that has been just like, this guy doesn't have any limits and having those clients and being able to pander to those people is really amazing for me. Just having the ability to have a client that can come in and spend that type of money and just let us have a canvas that we can really work with and do something special. To me, that's, that's what makes it so awesome is just, you know, having clients like that and being able to do it. But you know, the, the cool couple things about it that just, I really like, man, exhaust cutouts. I just thought that was so cool. Every time somebody comes over, I start it up and they go, oh, it sounds awesome. And then I flip a button and it goes to open headers and they all high five <laughs> each other, you know, and then and then I just think that's the coolest thing. And then yeah. in the ceiling, we did this really awesome. Um, there's two fans that sit in the ceiling with stainless mesh surrounding them and they've got louvers that allow the air to come in. And then it blows cold air down on top of your head from outside the buggy. Like um, it sounds kind of simple, but when you look at it, the fabrication's unreal. There ain't a, there's not a bot, there's not a panel on that buggy that doesn't have some type of bead roll in it or a step roll or something. We really just spent a lot of time making all the details super, super nice so that we could show it off. I mean, it's it's a show car, it really is. Yeah, yeah. I will say the when you sent me the pictures. Uh, the first thing I like, I really got through everything and I looked at the roof and I was just like, this is, this is like, this is something that is like prototype that everything will have next. You know, like if I, if you could sell me some kind of razor cage with, with a built-in fan system like that, you would, I would pay you a prop, a ridiculous amount of money because it's super cool. Is amazing. Yeah, it's super cool. And of course, you know, that's something that we run into with every buggy that we do is that basically every one of them is a prototype. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's all custom. It's all one off. So the amount of material and time that we have into that is going to be two or three times what it'll be once we get the process down and we can produce it over and over. And so, you know, that particular option right there you know, you could make it out of that sheet metal and do all that craziness with the bead rolling and everything. And it's going to be super expensive, but maybe the next one, we have it blow molded and we can can have a piece that's 40 bucks that goes in there with a pair of fans and, you know, it goes in all of our buggies or something. So it's, it's super interesting to be able to build stuff like that. And it's even more interesting whenever we just get a, a canvas that we can just go to town on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now you, you mentioned the, the clientele you have, there is a, me, me before I interject my own opinion here, do you have, um, do you keep track of where your buggies go? Like if you build a chassis, yeah. do you just, do you, you know, you kind of just like, Oh, I'll follow him on social media or I'll just see kind of what it turns into. Do you do that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Any, any buggy that comes from us as a turnkey buggy gets a VIN number, you know, so we can keep track yeah. of it and we know where it went to and all that stuff. And we know that it's a turnkey. As long as it's a turnkey from us, we did everything. 
then it gets that VIN number. If it's something where the customer takes it home and finishes it out, we absolutely stay in contact with our customers. And if we have a situation that pops up, we we absolutely need to know about it so that we can improve and get better in the future. So uh, for instance, if, if we have a situation where we build uh, a drive shaft kit and we're starting to twist yokes like we did on um, Gold Rush and Bad Influence, we, we had a drive shaft kit that we were pushing out and we started twisting yokes on them. Um, we're seeing it just over the thousand horsepower mark. We're starting to see those twists. And we know from that experience and being able to stay with our customers that we don't need to sell that to anybody that's over a thousand horsepower. So we absolutely stay in contact with our customers. One, because we're interested in them. We want them to have a great time. And two, so we can learn from it and create a better experience for future customers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and personally, like, Every designer, I call you, you know, every fabricator has their own style of buggy. So when I see one pop up, I'll always give them a follow because uh, the the one that comes to mind is, um, I believe his name is Will Giddens Jr. Yeah, that guy yeah. gets rowdy, and he yeah. has for a long time, but he has one of your chassis, and man, the thing is just, I there's a lot of people that rag like like treat their machines rough, and man, that guy lays it on the line all the time. I love yeah. It. Probably That's one of my no favorite. Yeah, we, he's he's one of the uh, couple of guys that we have that are using Rockwells on the rigs, and mm-hmm. and the way that our our chassis designed, it has a high nose in the front, but it's for a bunch of reasons. Um, it basically allows for you to run like a Rockwell axle with a top loader. And you can still get 10 inches of up travel out of it, which is just not possible out of anybody else's chassis. And um, Will Giddens is a perfect example of that. You know, he's got a set of 46s on a set of Rockwells. The chassis doesn't weigh a lot. And um, he's he's named at least three hills that I know of in different parts that nobody else has been able to make it up. And he was able to make it up. So it just it just shows you that. You know, the buggies are working, the geometry is right. And as long as you've got a, a fairly good de- driver in there, you know, you can make some really awesome stuff happen. That's a fact. And that's why I brought it up was just that uh, that car itself with paired with the right driver has doing is doing damage. Everywhere. Right. So I, yeah. I love it. Uh, the so, weekend warrior. It's great. Yeah. It's oh, I love it. I just love the fact that like, you know, you know, very similar chassis can do everything. You know, you have right. a gold rush and then you have uh, bad influence and then you have someone like the weekend warrior who just, I mean, just, it just, I love it. I love the spectrum of what you guys have created. I think it's really, really cool. Um, But one thing I want to do is, you know, you mentioned all this follow-up and communication you do with your racers and with your, you know, people who buy your products. Um, One thing that you do that not many do is uh, suspension tuning and suspension. You you put a lot of effort into it. I've talked to, uh, I believe it was uh, Steven Rogers. Who's who's come to see you before Uh, countless racers, countless, um, recreational guys, they come in to come get their shocks looked at, springs looked at. And I kind of wanted to have an open book conversation with you about what does, you know, what does it mean when you say that you're shock tuning? What is, what, you know, what does a shock do? What is all the different designs for things? And uh, I know a lot of the, it's funny, a lot of the RC guys have a really good understanding of suspension because uh, at the one tenth scale, you can put your hands on it. You can move it around, see how it moves, and it's essentially a real-life version of CAD because you know you yeah. can go down to your hardware store and you know get some little rod ends and, and a little threaded pipe, and you can start redoing your geometry. And uh, a lot of these guys have conversations about you know trailing arm versus four links and you know shock on axle things like that. So uh, I wanted to have that discussion because 
Um, in the RC world, there's only so much tuning you can do in those little shocks, but the tuning in the UTVs, uh, the, the Ultra 4 cars and the bouncers specifically, um, it is a science to say the least, if not an art form. Uh, so I'm ready to discuss everything. Wherever you want to start, I'm going to give it to you. Okay. Um, you know, I, I tried to do a class like this whenever I was at the Unlimited Off-Road Expo. And um, yeah, they, I was up on stage and, you know, we, we had a suspension class and there was a lot of people that were super interested in it. And whenever they started gathering around and I started talking about suspensions, uh, you could tell that, you know, they lacked so much fundament fundamental knowledge. It was like trying to start calculus and you never made it through pre-cal. Yeah. You, know, you just you got to have that underlying understanding of what it takes to build the suspensions. And so we created on YouTube, uh, we've got a rock rods tech section and it basically starts off with four link design and then goes through a bunch of that stuff. And then it talks about, you know, anti squat, which are kind of the two biggest things that we run into whenever we're talking about suspensions and and how they're all designed. And, you know, every vehicle that's out there has the fundamentals that are in the suspension from geometry. And then from there you get into the shock tuning. And the cool thing about having like a Polaris razor or something is that those fundamentals of the geometry itself are already engineered and where they're supposed to be. The mm -hmm. problem that you run into in like the rock bouncers and ultra four is a lot of times you're, you're trying to use the shocks to mask a problem that's in the geometry. So you've got to make sure starting off that you have good geometry and that you you have all the fundamentals because it's almost impossible to make a car work properly if you don't have that. So I encourage everybody who's watching to just venture over to the YouTube channel. You can type in my name, type in Jake Berkey, Four Link or Jake Berkey, uh, Rock Rods, and we have a whole series. It's also on our website, bustedknuckleoffroad.com. And if you go into like the suspension section and you look at link bars or shocks, there's like different tech videos in there and on our, our main header, there's tech videos in there. And it just basically helps you kind of get the, the fundamentals and the knowledge. Um, but to start off with, you know, there's all sorts of different four links and stuff that you can do. Uh, basically, you got to start off trying to figure out what type of four link you want um, and, and what your wheelbase is going to be, what type of vehicle you have. And a lot of that just comes from a ton of reading. You're going to basically sit down and you're going to just start reading and trying to figure out like, you know, what's the best four link for me? And, and they're not all created equal. You know, I mean, a lot of Jeep guys use a three link because there's a problem where there's clearance issues um, with a starter and there's problems with clearance issues with the drive shaft and stuff. So guys are using three links. Um, if you decide that you're going to have a streetable vehicle and you're going to have a drag link, then you need to have a pan hard bar so that your axle swings in the same arc as your, as your drag link. And it keeps your steering straight when you're going down the road. Um, mm -hmm. If you're running a complete off-road rig, you know, four links are usually king and in the four links are usually king. 90% of your guys that are out there are going to run a triangulated four link. Um, mm -hmm. It's it basically there's a lot of tuning you can do with a triangulated four link that you can't do with just a traditional four link with a pan hard bar. Um, if you do a pan hard bar setup, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's going to move in an arc and you're going to adjust your anti squat. But a lot of the stuff that, um, that we do with the double triangulated four links is more specific to the motorsport that we're in. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so 
We generally do the double triangulated four links front and rear. Um, it gives you a place for your tires to turn on the lowers. The lower bars are going to be cantered in at the chassis and out at the axle. So you've got a little pocket for your, for your tire to swing into. Same thing in the rear if you've got rear steer. Um, it gives you a great spot to land your upper four link bars. Um, it pivots around the motor really well. Um, and so I guess starting off, the first thing I'm going to tell you is research a bunch of it figure out what four link design you need and then go with it. Um, some things that I think that people really need to pay attention to that I see a lot of mistakes on um, one anti-squat, obviously people, you know, they don't understand anti-squat. We've got a video on it. That's uh, really good to watch, but your anti-squat needs to be right for the type of application you're in. Um, if you're an ultra four desert car guy, you're going to have a low anti-squat. You're going to be down in the, maybe 30s or 40s sometimes if you're going super fast through the desert. Um, and the reason is, is every time you get a tire rotation and the, the grip of the tire hits the ground, it's basically going to try to lift the chassis. That's, that's anti-squat is lifting the chassis. It's stopping it from squatting, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go a set, across a set of whoops, let's say you're going across a set of whoops at 40 miles an hour and you're on the gas, that anti-squat is going to grab the face of every one of those whoops and it's just going to jar the chassis. So lower your anti-squat. It's going to give you a better feel. But if you're a rock bouncer and you're trying to start up a ledge that's only got an eight foot runway and you got to jump something that's huge, you want a lot of anti-squat so that you can sit there, get your motor revved up, stab the gas, and it's going to put a ton of force down on the ground and give you that explosive first initial jump that you need to be able to get up the obstacle. So you kind of got to know what you're shooting for and, mm -hmm. and the reason that you would want more or less anti-squat. And then you're, you're going to look at some other stuff like uh, roll center. Mm -hmm. Roll center is huge. If you don't have a high roll center, then you're going to automatically have a lot of body roll. And if you have a lot of body roll, that means that you're either going to have to tune out the body roll with your shocks or you're going to have to tune out the body roll with your sway bar. If mm -hmm. you tune it out with the shocks, you're going to have a lot of rebound and basically a lot of compression. Your suspension is going to end up stiff and it's not going to work the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. So if you want to loosen up your suspension, then you have to put a bigger sway bar on it. And then what happens is if you hit a rock, let's say on the passenger rear, it lifts the entire rear end of the vehicle up instead of just allowing that one tire to move up and out of the way. Mm -hmm. So the, the geometry is everything. And, you know, every one of our vehicles that we build has a lot of time built into the geometry to make sure that when you get in it and you drive it, it doesn't have a lot of body roll. It's going to give you really solid performance all the way around. Um, and it's going to perform. And, and I think a lot of guys kind of miss that initial stage of knowing what to do. And, you know, we designed those rock rods videos so that people can watch them and kind of watch them over and over and over again and kind of understand the gist of them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I was going to say earlier that, uh, that is one of the first things I brought up in our first interview was that, uh, I learned so much about suspension, so much so from your videos that I actually wanted to be a mechanical engineer to go study and run the numbers. And this is like I wanted to design suspension. And yeah. uh, it was a it was is the Internet is awesome for learning things and it's awesome for not learning things at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Fantastic. Uh, so it was good to have a, a center of truth and a center of large a breadth of knowledge that was very wide. Um, so I thought that was always very, very interesting. And I think that those are excellent videos you guys have done. And uh, some of them are a little dated, 
Uh, you look a little younger in a couple of those videos and the hair is a little poofier. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but they're all still very relevant. So mm -hmm. I, I personally have I've gone back. I watch them. And uh, the things that you were mentioning about anti-squat, uh, anti-squat in particular, I had never thought necessarily uh, about how that plays into Rock Bouncer versus an Ultra 4. Yeah. Um, I think that that's really, really cool because um, obviously you would imagine you wouldn't necessarily want the lift off the car. And and then I, I kind of, while you were talking, I was replaying moments where I've seen, you know, buggies like uh, just basically any rock bouncer and they put their foot in the gas and you'll kind of see not a little, you know, a little torque twist, but the the actual car kind of load up on it. And, and I hadn't thought, you know, I've always thought, oh, well, just, you know, either, you know, it's tuned a certain way, it's sprung a certain way. And I hadn't thought about the actual geometry causing that mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, essentially you're gaining like a bunny hop on a, on a razor scooter. It's just, it's, it's pulling the whole thing up and, and kind of preloading you uh, to get you up and above off the ground just a little bit more, which uh, your explanation was wonderful. I think, I think yeah. that is a excellent way to, to say that. So uh, that is, that's really, really cool. Um, my next question would be, you know, well, let me, let me say this first. Uh, the, triangulated four link you mentioned is in, is in most of the high performance off-road rigs like rock bouncers and things like that. Um, but the, the, the four link with a pan hard bar is a lot like what you'd find on a Jeep JK from the factory. Is that correct? Right. Okay. okay. And that's where you have basically an upper control arm, a lower control arm, but they're, they're just straight. And then you have a pan hard bar um, right. on, on the axle or track bar. Um, right. But but that's that's it's a you did an excellent job explaining that and uh, I I just uh, I want to know that once you have you know let me just think it like this the anti squat and, and those and those numbers how do they come into play with things like pinion angle and you know all those adjustments because you know everything affects everything in that situation I know that there's some software Absolutely. out there but uh, yep. how how do you how do you find that perfect spot where everything's in line. Yep. So, so it, again, it, it depends on what you're doing and what you're targeting and, and why you may do one thing or the other. Um, but the point that you brought up is, is really important because like if you had a triangulated four link and you were running on the street and you had a lot of anti dive, so anti dives in the front, anti squats in the back, and you have a lot of anti dive, um, that's really good for climbing hills because it helps balance the buggy out and keeps the buggy from trying to pull the front end back when you're going up a hill. Mm -hmm. But what that does is that means that the pinion angle basically changes a lot through the suspension cycle because the more anti-squat or more anti-dive that you put into a suspension, the more the pinion angle changes throughout the articulation cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that you'll find out is that if you're running through the desert, let's say, and or you're on the road and you're going 70 miles an hour and you hit a, a bump and the suspension goes up and it goes back down. The last thing you want going that fast is your pinion angle to change a whole bunch, because guess what that does? That changes your caster. And if you're changing your caster up and down, <laughs> you know, 12 degrees at 70, 80 miles an hour, it gets really squirrely. Yeah. So in that situation, you would want less anti-dive because that's going to keep your pinion angle uh, more let relative to the ground. Mm -hmm. And then that's going to basically keep your caster where it's supposed to be and keep your steering components from trying to rotate up and down whenever you go over that bump. So there's a bunch of reasons why you may do one thing or the other. And that's why a lot of times with a Jeep JK, 
you know, you see a, tra a traditional four link and it doesn't have almost any anti-squad. What we call a parallel four link where the upper bars and the lower bars are almost parallel to each other. Mm -hmm. And then you have the track bar. That means that when you're driving down the road and you hit a bump, the suspension swings evenly with where your, dra uh, your drag link is going to be. And then your pinion angle is staying relative to what you'd set up at ride height. Mm -hmm. And so if let's, let's say we take that same concept and we go back to the back of the rig and you know, where caster is not a big deal because you don't have steering in the back. Right. So what's the most important thing? The most important thing is making sure that your drive shaft isn't going to pop out or something like that. Or, you know, for an ultra four guy, what they run into is they're hitting whoops. Let's say you're going 70 miles an hour and you hit a bunch of whoops. Your suspension's going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Well, if you have a pinion angle that is staying like this, I don't know if you can kind of see that. Yeah. And it's going up and down like this. Well, it's pulling that dry shaft in and out, in and out, in and out really fast. And I've, we've seen a lot of guys overheat their dry shafts and melt the splines off of them. So what happens if you have a lot of anti-squat and whenever you travel through those same whoops and it pivots with the pinion angle pointed directly at the chassis, your U-joints aren't seeing as much stress. Your dry shaft's not plunging as much, but you also get a lot of that anti-shock load on the back face of the whoops that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? So it's a trade-off and you've got to figure out, you know, for your sport and what you're doing, what the best anti-squat's going to be and, and where you want your caster and all that stuff. And unfortunately, it's not one of those one shoe fits all type deals. So right. in my video, I recommend taking holes and putting them at the chassis vertically so that mm -hmm. you can take your link bar and slide it up and then slide yeah. it up and you can change your anti-squat and then you can yeah. tell in your vehicle what's going to be the best for you yeah that's cool it's so funny as soon as you said that the the mental image came back and i was like blast from the past there so yeah that's that's awesome and to me that's the kind of thing where some guys they they just throw together a buggy in their garage and like it just you know we threw it together it works it goes it you know maybe it's a minor maybe it rides like crap whatever just that's mm -hmm. kind of the gist of where it ends um, but once you have, well, it's so funny, you, it may ride like crap, but if you put a little bit of thought ahead of time and do something like makes it, a big just, difference. Oh my gosh. It makes a world of difference because, um, I got a chance to ride in, uh, I've gotten a chance to ride in trail buggies where, you know, someone has thrown one together in the garage and then I've gotten a chance to ride in buggies like the Avenger buggy and, and, you know, really high end high dollar buggies and, um, there's a difference and there's, there's a, a difference that you, that you pay uh, someone who knows what they're doing to do it. Um, yeah. And like you were talking about just a second ago, people who throw them together, those are the people that are in the chat room saying, Oh, just stick it together. It'll be fine. You know, or just, just weld it out, man. What are you doing? It's going to be just fine, man. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like you can take a four link and you can put it together. And as long as it flexes out, and it and it doesn't hit anything and everything is smooth and like your your dry shaft doesn't get into any link bars it's going to go through the trail and it's probably going to climb some hills and it's probably going to be fine but once you ride in a vehicle that has all that stuff that's properly designed you'll it'll blow your mind you'll be like i cannot believe that this is available and it's it's like going from leaf springs to coilovers and it just blows your mind how much will the difference in that ride quality is the difference in the ride quality that you can have if you design your suspension properly and your geometry is right and then you tune your shocks it's like going from leaf springs to coilovers that's the coilover to a good suspension so that that leads us into the next topic and i, I was going to mention 
Uh, it's like a lot of a lot of UTV guys don't know how crappy their stock machines ride because uh, Polaris and Can-Am, everyone does extremely conservative valving to where mm -hmm. I think it's two 250-pound people with like 500 pounds of gear in the back. Right. No one in the East does that at all. Rides like crap. If you guys have never been in a car that has, you know, uh, for example, shock therapy, G-Force, uh, you guys, I don't know if you guys do UTVs, but I'm just for an example, um, you know, someone who has the the forked over the money to really get their suspension in, man, it makes you it's never unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It really I, I, I had a UTV 101 episode I did, and I was like, in my top three things, it was Cajun harness, wheels and tires, and then if you got the money, send those shocks off, get them resprung, and get them revalved. And that's what I want to talk about uh, next is – Okay, I've got my four link set up. I've got everything the way it should be. Um, how do you determine uh, spring rates? How do you determine what size coilover to run? Um, how does that conversation even start once that everything's sitting there? Okay, so um, let's go with coil size or let's go with shock size to begin mm -hmm. with because that's a that's kind of the very first thing that you would start off with, right? Mm -hmm. So vehicle weight and what you're doing is really the main depiction of what size shock you're going to run. Um, diameter really takes precedence over anything else. Um, you want the largest diameter that you can afford. And if you decide to go with, with two and a half inch, that's great. If you can go with three inch, go with three inch. If you can go with bigger, go with bigger. But basically, the diameter makes a big difference because just like with anything, whether it's a hydraulic cylinder of any sort, you know, the diameter of that piston is being multiplied into the fluid, right? So you end up with a force and the larger that you have the piston, the more fluid that it can flow through and the easier it is for you to control force. So okay. that's number one. Now, now where is that split? Well, that splits usually in people's pocketbooks. You know, ma mainly that's where the split comes is how much money they're willing to spend on how much ride quality. Um, and it's and it's a diminishing returns. You know what I mean? You go from Lee Springs to a coilover. That's a big jump. Yeah. You go from a emulsion coilover to a remote reservoir. That's a big jump. You go from the reservoirs to a bypass. That's a big jump. But then you start to peter out. And you only get like that 10% by going with another $5,000 or $8,000 in shock package. So yeah. you really got to figure out how much money you're willing to spend. Yeah. The second thing is how much does your vehicle weigh? Um, you know, you don't want to put a shock on a vehicle that weighs more than what the shock can handle. Um, I see a lot of guys that are running two and a half inch bypasses. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you've got an 8,000 pound rig, I promise you that I'm having to put four and five shims where there's only supposed to be one just to keep it from bottoming out. Yikes. And when you get to that point, you really need that extra diameter because that again is, is a force vector, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a force applied to the piston and the larger the piston, the easier it is for that piston to be able to control that force. So mm -hmm. instead of running three or four shims on top of each other, now you're running one big shim and you're getting the same amount of, of valving, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, so big shocks, absolutely. Keep them cool. There's a lot of fluid volume um, and there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to go to a big shock like that. Um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the razors and, and stuff that's desert racing, you see these gigantic shocks and, and that just yeah. it kind of explains it. Um, so the next thing is, you know, if I would say that if you're, 4,500 pounds and lower, um, you could get by with a two inch shock. And if you're racing on 4,500 pounds, then you need to be to a, a two and a half inch shock or bigger. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then the springs and everything else become more expensive as you go up or whatever. But that's a good kind of a starting point, I would say, uh, for trail riders. Man, if you're just trail riding and you're just wanting to have a good time, then you can put two and a half or two inch shocks on a 5,000 pound rig and and it'll be fine. It's it's just you're leaving a lot on the table. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's kind of how I would suggest on the shocks is just to pick pick the best shock package that you can afford uh, if it makes sense. If you're just a trail rider and you're just going off and kind of goofing off. There's really no reason to, you know, go to a super expensive shock package, a set of emulsions and, you know, a case of beer and you're good to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if, yeah, yeah. if you're yeah. in a situation where you're wanting to race or you're wanting the best performance, you know, uh, go with a set of bypasses and the larger diameter, the better. So what size, uh, what size bypasses, what size piston do you guys run on your buggies? Uh, we're running two and a half inch and, uh, you know, with what we're doing, it works out really well because we're starting at the bottom of the hill and, you know, we're violently climbing to the top of the hill in 19 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you know, a lot of my clients are asking, you know, what size shocks to run and all that stuff. And we're normally running two and a half. Um, if we can, we'll run a three inch. Uh, but that's pretty much the biggest because we just don't really, we just don't really see the benefits past a three inch and what we're doing, you know? Sure. Yeah. Now, with things like monster trucks and, you know, super high impact vehicles, what's the diameter on a shock that they run? Um, you know, I'm not really too sure on the monster trucks because I think that they run a nitrogen shock. It's like 24 inches of travel, but it's made for it's almost like a big air shock. And yeah. then they'll run like four per corner. Um, <laughs> so it's really like apples and oranges. Sure. Um, it's really just not the same. You know what I mean? So, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, four, four, two inch. I don't know what they run. I think they run two and a half. And they're like 24 inches in length or whatever. And they're like air shocks. But, you know, four of those, I, man, I've never messed with them. So I don't know if that's better than one four inch shock or not. But I can tell you that <laughs> it's a different, it's a different thing. You know, they're not going to go through the desert at 90 miles an hour. They're not going to climb a big hill. They're going to hit a big jump. And it's got to land with one instant stroke that's super high velocity. Yeah. Now, before we move on uh, in, in the discussion, because we're going to go more the coilover bypass conversation. Um, oh, oh, I I, you had asked me about spring rates and stuff, yeah. and I didn't even answer the question. Before we go there, while we're okay. on the topic of air shocks, ORIs, they're yep. widely used in trail vehicles. Uh, I think the outlaw vehicles, they even use them on the front. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't recall. They may have switched over, but um what is that? How do you tune that? Is it just filled with nitrogen? Is that literally just, it's just air in there? Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit out of sorts because I've never been inside one to mess with one, but I do know that there's an upper and lower chamber. And basically you pressurize the lower chamber and you pressurize the upper chamber and the ratio between the two is what sets your ride height. So if you have more pressure in your lower chamber, then your vehicle rides higher and, you know, vice versa. And the more pressure you put in equilibrium. So let's say you have 60 percent of your uh, of your ratio and that gives you a ride height. But then mm -hmm. you can increase the upper and the lower chamber accordingly the same. And that basically stiffens or loosens up the ride. So I do know that that's how they, they do that. There's bump chambers inside of them. Um, they're very technologically advanced. And there's a lot of guys out there who, who run them and absolutely love them. A lot of trail guys, they're super simple, super clean. They're a really nice package. Um, but you don't see desert guys running them. You don't see yeah. you know high-end trophy trucks running them. And I think that's just because 
there's still stuff on the table that um, can't be achieved with a shock that's like that. Uh, that can only be achieved with a, a bypass large valved, you know, shock. I mean, that's really just what it boils down to. I mean, uh, you know, we just got the opportunity to work with um, a King of the Hammers winning car, which was really cool. And uh, I actually got to go in the shocks and mess with them. And um, I was very surprised at some of the stuff that I found. But it, um, it's it's a completely different way of tuning that I had not gotten into yet. And it blew my mind. And I learned a lot from it. And, you know, that's a car that, you know, won King of the Hammers. And, and you know, in order to do that, they had a certain package. And you can't achieve that certain package with an ORI. However, mm -hmm. I do not hate on O-Rise. I feel like they're a good package for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a reason that so many people use them. You, you mentioned it earlier. You just, you know, they work for trails. Yeah. They work for some racers even. Uh, but I've always wondered about the, how it actually operates in a similar fashion, because like I said, plenty of guys have success with them. It's just a very interesting concept to have, but that's very interesting about the, the two chambers and kind of how that system would work. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes sense. You know, it makes it makes engineering sense wise. Um, but back to spring rates and things like that. OK, so for spring rates, that's another one of those fundamental things that you can't screw up and have your suspension actually work properly. Um, it's like geometry, like we were talking about earlier. That's that's part of your basis. And, you know, there's tons of math that goes into it and tons of stuff that we do whenever we're trying to figure out what the geometry or what the spring rates are going to be. Uh, we sit down and go through all this stuff to try to figure out what the perfect spring rate is going to be. And when it boils down, what we found out is that once you crunch all the numbers and you come out of that number crunch, you're going to be basically zero to one inches of preload in the front and two to three inches of preload in the rear. Mm -hmm. And and if you do that, it balances out the suspension. And what you find is that Let's just picture a vehicle going across a set of whoops or a set of rocks or whatever. It doesn't really matter. As the front end is hitting, because the, the you've got zero to one inches of preload, think about what that really means. What is preload? Preload is the amount of squish that you have on the springs at ride height, right? So if you have zero to one inches of preload, what does that mean? That means that you have a heavier spring in the front. So what does a heavier spring actually do? It, it actually moves faster. And I, I gave the analogy in one of my four link videos. Picture yourself holding a spring that's really soft, a, a, something that's got a, a small spring rate on it. It's got really small coils on it mm -hmm. and, and wiggle it back and forth. It kind of has like a really slow movement to it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then if you have a spring that's really stiff and you do the same thing and you move it back and forth, guess what? It has more of a, of, of, a, of a fast, abrupt movement to it. And that is the frequency of the spring. It's just like when you go and you, and you, and you get on like a Cadillac car and you push down on it a couple of times and it just kind of goes boing, boing, boing. Yeah. And then you do it to a Corvette, it wiggles once and stops. Mm -hmm. Well, that's spring rate. That's, that's preload. That all works together. And what you're basically trying to do is you're trying to target a certain frequency for the front and a certain frequency for the rear. And the frequency has to match the speed that you're moving over the terrain that you're hitting. And when you crunch all the numbers, then you go through and you try to figure out how much spring rate that you're gonna put in these vehicles for how much speed, 
it boils down to basically zero to one inches of preload in the front and then two to three inches of preload in the rear. And the rear end moves slightly slower than the front end. You do not want the vehicle to run the same frequency front and rear because guess what happens when those frequencies match? It's just like anything, like when two waves match, you know what I mean? Like when you're when you're driving around in circles and you've got that tube behind you and all of a sudden you see those two waves that are just, you know, doubling in size. And then yeah. you take that tuber and you sling them into it. Well, that's what your vehicle looks like catapulting through the desert because you've got the same spring rate front and rear. Eventually, yeah. those two spring rates match each other and it basically bounces the vehicle out of control. So you've got to you got to basically have a faster spring rate in the front than you do in the rear. And that causes the vehicle to remain stable. When you hit the whoops, it's just like on a dirt bike. When you see a guy pin it and then lean back, the front springs are tighter than the rear springs and it lifts the nose up. And when it does, it allows the rear suspension to just really get down and start doing all the work, but you want it to rebound slow. And if it rebounds fast, it's going to start pushing the front end down. And if it pushes the front end down, then you hit really hard, you G out, you flip and all that stuff. So, you know, you really, you got to look at that. Now, now I want you to pay attention to another thing. We're rock bouncers, right? And we're going up the hill. And as fast as we feel like we're going up a hill, we're really hitting what, 20, 30 miles yeah. an hour max. Yeah. Even though it feels super violent and everything else, we're not hitting really fast speeds. You look at the ultra four guys, they're going through the desert. They're hitting a lot faster speeds than we are. Now you start looking at where their preload adjusters are on a lot of their shocks. Just just look up some of the guys who are winning King of the Hammers and stuff right now. And what you'll find is they basically have a really long lower spring. And then they have their adjuster nuts that goes from your, you know, what? Well, I guess I need to explain that. You've got primary rate and secondary rate in your coil springs. Yep. And your primary rate is when both your upper and your lower spring are moving in unison together. So it kind of blows people's minds. But if you take a 100 pound spring and you put it on top of another 100 pound spring and you compress it, a lot of people would think that the force of those two springs would still be 100 pounds, but it's not. It's actually 50 pounds. And, and I'm going to show you a spring chart real quick. Hopefully I don't oh. screw it up. Okay. So now you're looking at my screen here and I'm going to open up this. And here we go. So here's our spring rates. Can you see everything fine? Uh, so go into the go into StreamYard and the share screen, and then uh, when you share your screen, go under application window and change it from the CAD to the uh, or the SolidWorks to your uh, other image there. Okay. And so I said remove from Jake Berkey's screen. Okay. So I just clicked that Jake so Berkey's screen. I just screwed something up. Uh, go to share. I've, I've, I see it down there. Go to share screen at the very bottom. I think it's where okay. it is. Thanks for it says out. stop sharing right now. Um, yeah, so stop sharing. Okay. There we go. And then do it again and then pick the right application window. Um, but but something I want to mention is, you know, you, you said it in technical terms, but essentially you're saying firm spring up front, soft spring in the back. Correct. Firm, fast, soft, slow. That's right. A, that's a fair analogy, word association there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so here's our spring chart, right? So I want you to look at, can you see it now? Yep, absolutely. Okay, so you've got, can you see my mouse? Yes, sir. Okay, so if you take a 100-pound spring and you come over here and you have another 100-pound spring, basically what you get is a 50-pound combined rate. So if we did 200, so if we take 200 and we follow it down, 
all the way over to here and we have another 200 pound, it ends up with a hundred pound spring. And what the formula is, is basically spring one times spring two divided by spring one plus spring two, and it gives you your overall rate. But basically what that means, if you look at all your coilovers, they've got a spring on top and a spring on bottom, right? And, and why, and you start thinking about like, why are these razors drive like every razor that you see basically it comes from the factory and it's got one spring on top that's all the way collapsed and mm -hmm. you've got one on the bottom that's all the way extended right mm -hmm. and then you have these guys who are creating these dual rate kits and all of a sudden your razor rides a million times better you know why because you've you've, you've you've lowered your spring rate so basically what you had before, I'm just going to, uh, I don't know what the spring rates are off the top of my head on a razor, but mm -hmm. let's say you have a 100 pound upper spring mm -hmm. and then we come over to here and we have a 200 pound lower spring. Well, if your 100 pound upper spring is fully collapsed and it's not doing anything, you're riding on 200 pounds. But yeah. whenever you get a longer upper spring and now you have a longer upper spring that's 100 pounds and a, a longer lower spring that's 200 pounds, guess what? You went from 200 pounds to only 66.7. And that's why your vehicle rides so much better is because you're out of that initial, the, the secondary rate, which is the primary rates, both your coilovers combined and your secondary rate is when basically your lower one comes in and you can adjust it with the nuts uh, that are in between your preload nuts on a coilover. And that's super important because like, if you watch, um, if you watch uh, a rock bouncer go up a hill at 30 miles an hour, the suspension's really reacting in a slow manner. It's not going super fast like a desert car. Mm -hmm. So what we really target is a suspension that works in the primary rate. And we very rarely try to get into that secondary rate right off the bat. Now go look at some of the ultra four car guys who are winning king of the hammers. And what you'll see is they got a long lower spring and then they have their adjuster nuts run down so that they're basically in that secondary rate almost all the time. And guess what that does? That increases the frequency, just like I was talking about before, where you've got a heavy spring that moves very quickly and then mm -hmm. stops moving versus a long spring that moves really slow, a soft spring that moves really slow. They're targeting a faster spring rate and a faster frequency. So that's the reason why razors have what they have is because they were designed to be in the desert. They're, they're more designed for desert than they are for the East Coast. So when you run through a set of whoops and a razor and it's carrying, like you said, the extra weight and all that stuff, they've mm -hmm. got that heavier spring rate. And yeah. for us on the East Coast, it feels a lot better most of the time to run with a set of dual springs on top and bottom. So essentially, just for the 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 UTV, the the uh, I think you call it the either the adapter nut or the adapter ring. That's that's the crossover ring, correct? Crossover ring, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. It's a crossover ring. Okay, uh, so the crossover ring essentially, and in, in correct me at any point here, I'm I'm just pulling out a memory and, and trying to soak in what you said here. The crossover ring essentially, um, you know, if you're looking at the top of your shock here. And you're looking at the bottom, the crossover, uh, you have an upper spring, a lower spring, and then you have your little piece of plastic that sits between right. the two so they can sit there. Right. The, where the crossover spring determines at what point the softer spring stops working. Exactly. So it, as soon as you get a certain point, say, for example, 30% of the way up into your travel, into the shock travel, you'll instantly hit the crossover ring and essentially the only spring rate you have on there will be the lower spring. 
Exactly. You cancel out the upper spring. Perfect. Perfect. Yep. Uh, and, and one thing that I actually had a crash course in that, cause I actually won Anthony Yance RS one and then raced it like a month later. And he sent me a message that, Hey, if you're racing at AOP, bring the crossover rings up. And I just trusted him. And he was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Cause we had to, I basically went and did race prep on a car I'd never been through, had no idea exactly how to set it up. And uh, the reason being was AOPs, you know, much uh, really rocky, really rough course. So right. we raised the crossover rings up uh, so that we could soften everything up just a little bit. We there could, you go. Uh, we could extend the time period that the softer spring was in motion so that right. it would give us a little bit more of that float feel rather than being so stiff. That's 100 percent right. And that's a perfect example. And it's super easy to, to if, if you're watching this podcast and you're trying to kind of wrap your head around stuff. Take those crossover rings and spin them all the way down until they're right. touching the bottom spring at ride height and exactly. run it across the field and, you know, hit some hit some jumps or hit some rocks or something like that. You'll then take them and right. spin them all the way up and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of reasons why you may or may not want those crossover rings to do certain things. Um, so so here's where another thing you got to think about with those crossover rings, though. So. What happens if you have a single shock, right? You don't have bypasses and you've got a single shock and you take that crossover ring and you thread it down so that basically, you know, the suspension compresses four inches, then it hits that crossover ring. And then you go from your primary rate to your secondary rate. And then, you know, you basically have this spring that has all this energy. You hit a jump and all that stuff happens. Now you've got, instead of a 200 over 200 pound spring that gives you a 100 pound rate. You've got that lower spring that's 200 pounds and it's compressed four inches, right? So mm -hmm. now that's 800 pounds of force that that spring is trying to push back off. That's where you get bouncing from, right? Yeah. That's where you get, you know, a, a, an energy release. So how are you going to react to that energy release? Well, you're going to increase the amount of rebound in your shocks. You're going to put more shims to control that. Well, then what happens? The ride height in the zone where you have two springs moving back and forth now sucks because you have it vowed for that 800 pound force of that second spring. Interesting. So that's where the bypasses come in because the bypasses have different zones. You can take a zone and dedicate it so that whenever you hit that, that jump and you land and it goes from the two coil springs down to the single coil spring. Now you have a ton of energy and it tries to rebound. You can adjust the amount of rebound to be slower for only that perfect section. And then when it gets back to your two coil springs, it becomes softer. You oh, see yeah. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So the bypasses are really the king and you just, you can't do that stuff with the ORIs. And that's why, you know, you know, I deal with Radflow all the time. They're, they're one of our top manufacturers. We put guys on there all the time. They're winning races. You know, Timmy Cameron has not lost, but one hill where he tipped over and he has podiumed or he's, he's been first place in every single race that I know of yep. since then. And he's on Radflow shock. So it tells you that they've got their stuff figured out. And that tuning makes a huge difference on where the bypasses come in and how all that stuff works. But you can't get there if you're running a single shock. You see what I mean? You have to have that bypass to really get that next level of being able to tune the shocks. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a ton of stuff that goes into spring race, brother. I can yeah, talk all yeah. day. I'm telling you. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's great. And I think that that really gives a lot to kind of let simmer because um, there is so much to it. But now hearing that, I strongly encourage, I'm facing my mic here. I strongly encourage you go, you listen to this, you go look at your machine and then you listen to it again. And then yeah. you just kind of let the ideas marinate because uh, a, a lot of guys, uh, in, you know, either when they buy a rig or they get a, like, for example, on my Jeep JK, I ran the uh, King coilover system from Offroad Evolution. I got a spring rate on there. I, it's the same kit, two-door and four-door. And uh, I felt at, at ride height that there was, you know, there was a little bit too much preload for what my two-door and it was a little too stiff. And I was really frustrated and didn't know how to articulate my issue with it. So I right. hope this gives, you know, everyone, any any expert will tell you that if you can talk about it, if you can have a conversation about it, you know what you're talking about. So well, I, it's kind of funny because like I've got two different two different guys who are like racing our buggies. Right. Uh -huh. Shane, he's like. Oh man, I feel like the rebounds too fast and I'm hitting my crossover rings too soon. And it just feels like I need a little bit more compression ratio and everything else. And then Matt Schistler's like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what does it feel like? You know, yeah. tell me a little bit. He's like, well, it just, I don't know. It just feels good. And I'm like, come on, man. You got to give me something, you know? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. I, uh, there's a lot of guys that, I, so in the UTV world, I look at all these guys who, um, are racers and they haven't done any money into aftermarket shocks or valving or anything, uh, especially the hill killing guys where you can see a pretty good, I mean, there's great results in shock tuning for all applications and, you know, they're out there getting the teeth beat out of them and bottoming out and everything else and in between. And I'm like, man, if you guys just knew not only what you're missing, but if you could diagnose how some, if you get in a car, you know what it feels like and you can diagnose it and say hey i need to do x you know right. just people to know what's not only what's wrong but like how to where to start is so yeah. helpful so yeah helpful. and and i want to i'd like to get into uh, this is a little bit more than just 101 shock tuning but i think yeah. a lot of listeners would want to kind of understand some of this stuff um so I'd like to pull up some diagrams of some shim stacks and stuff and basically talk about like what once you get your spring rates and your geometry and everything figured out, like and, and you're sitting there and you really just maybe you're a racer and you just want that extra little bit and you don't really know where to start. You know, maybe this would be something that would be good that a lot of listeners could, you know, play around with in their backyard and kind of make some changes and stuff. Does that sound fine? Yeah, absolutely. Please bring okay. it up. You're 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 running the, the, the show for me today. It's been great. Okay. All right. So, so let's say you've got a rig, you know, and, and it doesn't matter if it's a trail rig or if it's a race car or whatever, the fundamentals of which way to go on shock valving will really help you out. And especially if you're willing to just get in there and start messing with stuff. Okay. Yeah. You're going to make mistakes. Uh, you're going to do some stuff. Then you're going to call one of your friends who knows how to shock tune. And he's going to say, Oh crap, you did that. No, never do that. And you're going to learn from process of elimination and you're going to learn from doing something and it doesn't work or it makes a big change in the right direction. But uh, I wanted to kind of pull up um, a couple different diagrams real quick. I'm going to share my screen and see if this works. Application window and my application that I want, I don't see. So uh, maybe my entire screen. I can't share that. Um I don't know how I did it last time. Maybe I can just do this. Share. Okay. Can you see my buggy? Yep. 
Okay. Well, anyways, everybody who's watching, that's a, a fully designed CAD model of a buggy with trailing arms and uh, shock travel. I can actually grab this model and move the suspension up and down and do all sorts of cool stuff, but that's not what I planned on showing you. I'm going to try to try to get um, a uh, right here in my photos. Uh, that's a trailing arm thing. Maybe I don't have it pulled up. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. No problem. And for those who are listening to just the audio, um, if you go back to either the Instagram or the Facebook post, I'm going to have screenshots of all this stuff um, for you guys to look over. Uh, the beauty that is SolidWorks and the beauty that is CAD is extremely helpful because a lot of these uh, tough to wrap around ideas, you know, if you're, if you're not, if you don't have a shock, right there in front of you. It's kind of hard to grasp some of these ideas, um, but having either, you know, a picture pulled up of your favorite rig or what have you, uh, it's a really, really nice thing to have because um, once you get the thought process down, um, it, it's something that you can, you can understand, you can justify why shock tuners can charge so much. And, and that's a lot of the reason why people don't do shock upgrades, but uh, springs, you know, even if it's a stage two spring kit or something along those lines, uh, just upgrading your springs is a huge thing, but I really, uh, wanted to do a really big deep in dive depth here. So, uh, do you have it pulled up? Uh, yep, I do. Um, let me get back into here. This is another cool little thing that I've been working on here. This is a Ford nine inch chromoly housing that we're going to be releasing before too long, but, um, it's a, might be a little blurry. Hopefully you guys can kind of see some of this stuff, but this is just a cross section of inside of a shock, right? So you've got the shaft down here at the bottom and uh, then I'm still looking at the Ford nine inch. Really? Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's, I don't know how to make that stop. Let's, uh, can you see it now? I uh, just got a black screen now. Try really? it. Go entire screen again. There we go. Thanks for bearing with us, everybody. This is uh so this is actually the first time I've had my guests share their screen. Uh, so okay. if I can, if you want to send me a link to anything and see if I can pull it up, I'll be more than happy to try that as well. Let's see, um, screen, and then I've got um, application window, and it just it it's doesn't allow me to pull up the. Um, it, it basically has Chrome and SolidWorks, but it doesn't have my pictures. And then if I click on your entire screen. Uh, can you see it now? I can see. I can see us. Okay. So let me do uh, that. Yep. There we go. We got it. Okay. All right. So let me try this real quick. Yeah. Perfect. For, for all the guys who are out there and they're checking this out and they're trying to learn how to tear apart shocks and stuff, we do have a video that's pretty basic on how to tear apart shocks and put them back together and all. Um, but basically, this is going to be what you're going to find inside of your shock. And if you look down here, this is labeled shaft and the compression shims are always going to be on the shaft size uh, side. And basically what happens is you've got holes in this piston and this piston is basically sealed to the walls of the shock and it's got, you know, shock oil. That's all this yellow. Mm -hmm. As the shaft goes up inside the shock, oil comes down, it goes around this port and it affects the compression shims and pushes them out of the way. And the more shims you have here or the heavier shims you have here, the stiffer the shock reacts to being compressed. So there's your compression. And then on the opposite direction, 
whenever the shock starts to travel back downward because the spring is pushing it back down towards the ground, oil comes in the, re the rebound port and basically pushes on these rebound shims and pushes them out of the way. And the heavier you have on your rebound stack, uh, the slower that reacts. And so what you want to do is you want to basically drive the vehicle to start off with and feel if you have, uh, you know, anything that really jumps out at you. So for instance, you're bottoming out. Well, normally when you're bottoming out, you're going to adjust more compression shims. And if your rebound is basically not allowing you to rebound fast enough, your, your shock will, will do what we call packing. And what that means is you, you let's say you hit a jump and you land and you didn't bottom out, but the vehicle bounces. Mm -hmm. What that generally means is that you jumped and you landed and your rebound shims are too heavy and it's not allowing the vehicle to go back up to ride height at the speed that the springs are trying to push it back up to ride height. So you would at that point want to remove some rebound shims and get your rebound down a little bit faster, um, which is removing shims and making less force on the oil going past. Um, so that's kind of a, a an easy way to kind of, you know, break that down. Let me open up um, another file, which I had opened up and it's no longer with us. Let me, um, let me say this. Uh, that's the best explanation of shims in a, in a, like the, the whole shim stack and everything. That's the best illustration I think I've ever seen. That was that's really cool. cool. That's cool. Well, I'm glad that you could you could see that because I got a couple more right here that'll be really cool too. Yeah, um, I think that this one also has something that's similar. Uh, nope, that's the exact same one. So let me open up <laughs> this one. And okay, so there you go. If you look at the side, uh, this particular one right here actually has the, the snapshot of what the spring looks like on the outside. Here's the spring down through here. There's your shock and there's your valving. Now, now, when we were talking about earlier, we were talking about the difference between a regular coilover shock or a regular shock and a bypass shock. So picture this whole entire assembly going up and down inside this shaft, right? Or inside this shock body. Mm -hmm. Well, what a bypass does is it has a one-way valve that starts up here on the top and goes down to the bottom. And it has, you know, a couple more that go from the bottom and go to the top or it'll have some that are in the middle. And what those do is it's, it basically allows fluid. So picture the piston going up and the fluid is being compressed above the piston because you got your shim stacks right here and they're basically mm -hmm. pushing fluid up. And what that bypass does is it allows fluid to go around the piston back down to the bottom. And you can adjust how much fluid goes back and forth by adjusting the outside of the bypass. So effectively, you can change the compression and the rebound of the shock without having to change these shims. So the beautiful part about it is that what you do in a bypass shock is you generally put a whole lot of compression shims and a whole lot of rebound shims, and then you adjust the, the resistance of that shock with your bypass tube. Mm -hmm. So that you can basically tighten it all the way up or you can loosen it all the way down just by changing those bypass valves and you can do a lot of tuning on the outside. Um, and then there's a little spot up here on the top 
where the tubes don't go all the way up to the top on a bypass, they'll stop about two or three inches down. Mm-hmm. And when your compression gets all the way up to that point and you're no longer hitting that re- or you're no longer hitting that bypass valve or that bypass tube, the shock basically goes to those compression shims and doesn't have any fluid going around it. And then you have a really stiff last couple inches. And, yeah. and what that does is that allows you to have a soft shock where you want it. And then when you hit a big jump and you land and it goes all the way through all that softness, that last couple inches becomes really stiff and it helps the vehicle not to bottom out. Amazing. So that's a really cool diagram. And then this is a very cool diagram. And this is a couple different shim stacks that you can do that do different things based on if, if you're in that scenario. Like we don't generally use this type of thing in a uh, in a bypass, like we would, we would use maybe a, a, a rate plate in a bypass. Um, but a flutter stack, we generally don't use in a bypass too much only for specific s- scenarios where you're trying to target a very certain thing. But basically, if you look at this diagram, this is the compression because it's on the same side of the shock shaft. And if you look at that arrow, it's moving up, which means that the fluid stationary is moving basically through these ports. It's going to go around the rebound and it's going to hit this shim. And if you look at that shim, see how it's bent out of the way? Mm-hmm. Well, that that's going to happen with your shims, whether you have them like this down here at the bottom or you have them like this or you have them like this. But basically the the resistance of that shim moving out of the way is going to change the amount of compression so the big shim that's sitting up here at the top has the most effect on your low speed compression and your low speed compression is going to be body roll it's going to be slow events like you come over a hilltop real slow and the vehicle sets down real slow. Uh-huh. That's where that's going to come into, into play. But it also comes into play when you hit flutter. Um, so let's say you're going across some washboard, you're in your UTV and you start hitting a bunch of wash, a washed out section where it just beats the crap out of you. But it's really, really small bumps uh-huh. and it's basically really fast. Well, that is also where this main shim comes into play. If you take that main shim and you make it softer or you go to a smaller one, it's going to allow you to go across that washboard and not have as much input into the suspension. It's basically going to allow this whole entire piston to move back and forth real fast. And this this shim right here is just going to basically bend out of the way really easily. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can achieve that by putting a small shim in between this big shim and the next one and that's called a flutter stack right up here you can see where it says flutter stack yeah that flutter stack allows the suspension to flutter it basically allows the suspension to move up and down very fast without having a lot of input into the suspension the cool thing about a flutter stack is let's say you hit a jump and you land and that fluid really picks up speed and comes around and pushes down on that shim, it's eventually going to touch this shim right here that's below it. And that shim's going to touch this shim and that shim's going to touch that shim and it's going to stiffen up. Mm-hmm. So a flutter stack, if you have one shock per corner, is a great way to have a suspension that feels really good in the whoops. It's going to feel really good in the chop. 
And then whenever you hit something that's really hard, it's going to stiffen up. And you can do flutter stacks on the compression and the rebound side to, to target certain scenarios and give you some type of, of, you know, initial movement in your suspension. Now, there's another way to do this. And I don't recommend this for anybody who has not got a really good understanding of shocks, but you can drill a hole straight through the piston that doesn't connect the upper or that doesn't touch those shims. And what that does, if you drill a hole through the piston, um, it basically allows fluid to go back and forth between the upper and lower chambers. It, it allows your your um, your piston to move up and down and not actually move your valving up and down. Yeah. So that's what we call uh, flow or uh, a bleed. We call it bleed. And basically the bleed is the amount that that shot can move back and forth without affecting the shims in a bypass shock like we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. bleeds fluid from around the piston back down to the bottom mm -hmm. so effectively what you get with a bypass is you get bleed and you get zones whereas with a regular shock you have to either drill a hole or you have to basically target velocity. So as the fluid comes down through and the velocity picks up, it changes and it pushes down on the shims more or less. And therefore we call any shock that doesn't have an external bypass or an internal bypass, anything that doesn't have a bypass, a velocity sensing shock. And then a bypass shock bypasses fluid and therefore you have a bypass shock. So those are two kind of big categories. Um, this next one down, you see this one where it says compression shims with a rate plate? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that big shim that's back on the bottom, if you pull apart your shocks, you'll see you're almost always going to have what's called a rate plate. And basically all that does is allows this shim to only move down until basically it hits this big plate. It's like a big washer that's inside there. And it allows only a certain amount of fluid to pass through before that shock tightens up exponentially. And basically mm -hmm. all it is is the fluid just can't go through that hole any faster because uh, the hydraulic fluid basically hydraulically locks coming through that small hole and mm -hmm. it stiffens up the shock, right? So that's what we have with a, with a, a rate plate. Uh, you typically only see those on the uh, compression side, um, but you would not believe how many guys – uh, have gotten into their suspensions and messed with them. And over the years, like there's parts missing and, and I see this plate right here missing a lot of times, but that's, that's another good thing to tune with because you can basically tune where the shock becomes hydraulically locked and, and stops the vehicle from bottoming out. Um, yep. And then down here at the bottom, you see where it says doubled up or plus one compression shim stacks. Uh, yes. This is, would be an example of something that, Basically, you take a, a a vehicle that takes a big hit, like a monster truck or something like that, and you would double up on your on your shims to basically make it super stiff. If you have a vehicle that's, you know, got a small shock with a lot of weight, or for instance, like we were talking about with our bypasses, um, I will take bypass shocks and I'll double or triple up these shims down through here, and I'll bypass the fluid around the outside as long as I have enough tubes to be able to do that. Um, I'll basically open up all my tubes and allow all of the bypass uh, of the um, of the fluid to go around. And then at the last couple seconds of the compression, you basically get to this super stiff shim pack and it keeps you from bottoming out. Um, 
Yep. A couple other things just to note when you're looking at your shims. Um, the top shims up here, like the ones that are the smallest in diameter, um, are the ones that are affected by high velocity. And so the higher the velocity of the incident, meaning the fluid is going to push through this shock very fast, you got to think the fluid passes by really fast. So what does that do? That takes this shim and pushes it into this shim that pushes it into this shim that pushes it in this shim. So if you have a really thick shim down here, that's going to be the shims that see your highest velocity. These shims up here, they're going to see movement in the lowest velocities, right? Mm -hmm. So if you barely move that shock, that shim has to move out of the way, but it doesn't really affect these until you get into the higher velocity. So if you're really happy with your vehicle when it hits the washboard, but it's bottoming out, come in here and start putting thicker shims up here uh, and, and then leave these shims over here. And then you're going to get a, a little bit heavier of a, of a, of a compression later in the, in the speed. Now, I know this is a lot to take in and, and this is going to be good for you because all of your viewers are going to have to watch this 17 times and, <laughs> and, and it's going to increase the amount of views on this video. But yeah. I think that a lot of guys, especially guys who are shock tuners, they'll want to watch this video to better themselves and they'll basically, you know, they'll, they'll watch this five or six times and it'll help your views, which is cool. But at the same time, it'll help them. And, and then yeah. they'll realize that, you know, I'm not just making this stuff up. It's not black magic. Um, it does. Even if I tell you all this stuff, you're still going to have to figure out what to do in the scenario that you're running into mm -hmm. in geometry and, you know, the type of suspension you have a trailing arm suspension versus a one-to-one -one shock ratio where your shock is bounded directly on the axle tube, um, your spring rates and all that stuff all plays into what you do with these shims to make your vehicle ride properly. Um, and I want to touch real quick on motion ratio yeah. and like trailing arms and stuff. So think of a shock that has a mount on the chassis and then it goes directly down to the, the it goes directly down to the axle itself. So it's a one-to-one -one motion ratio for every inch that your axle moves up, your shock moves one inch. Correct. Well, guess what happens? When you hit a bump, your motion ratio is one to one. So the amount of velocity that you see in your axle translates exactly into the amount of ratio or the amount of speed that you're going to see in your shock. But what happens right if you here. put that? Do what again? Just so, just, uh, just so uh, I'm showing everyone here what you mean by that is essentially you have a spring. Uh, the coilover set right onto the axle there, and every inch that is, or every centimeter in this case, that's moved up. The shock directly is resulting in the exact same amount of movement. And when we get to the next topic, which is trailing arm, it's not one to one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But so yeah, perfect I mean, example. Visual aid. So <laughs> basically, what you're going to run into, or what the beautiful part about a trailing arm system is is not only that you get more travel, which is what a lot of guys think is, you know, obviously a lot of travel is great. Um, mm -hmm. But there's there's a couple other really key things about motion ratio that really makes it outperform other types of suspension. So you take your shocks and you're going to mount them on the trailing arm about, 
I'm just going to throw out a number. We're going to go halfway up, which is a lot of travel in most scenarios. Mm -hmm. Basically, what you've done is you've created a one to two motion ratio. So for every inch of travel that you get at the rear end, your shock's only moving one inch. You mm -hmm. see what I mean? It, yeah. it's, it, I'm just saying that, for example, if you actually sit down and do the math, that's not exactly the way that works. Sure. Um, but I'm just saying that for an example, for people to kind of understand the overall concept of a trailing on what I'm trying to, to get at. Yeah. But, but what you find is that now your shock is not moving as fast as your suspension. Mm -hmm. So your axle is moving for every two inches. It's only moving one. And guess what? Your axle's moving faster than your shock. So what does that do? That means that this shim that I was pointing at earlier, the one that makes the most difference, the one that actually has the most ability to change your ride is now being utilized more mm -hmm. than these shims down here, right? So right. if you're in a scenario where you've got a one-to-one -one motion ratio and you hit a jump and you land, all that fluid velocity is coming faster. The faster the fluid velocity, the higher chance that you have for cavitation, the more all these shims are being flexed back and forth. If you have a one to two motion ratio or two to one motion ratio where your axles moving two inches for every one inch of your of your your shock and you take that same exact jump. Guess what? Your fluids not moving as fast. Your shims are being used better and, and and now you're targeting these slower shims because your fluid isn't moving as fast and therefore you can really dial in that suspension a lot better and you can really do a lot of cool things with the suspension that you can't do with a one-to-one -one motion ratio and that's why if you look at a polaris razor and all these other vehicles that are out they're mm -hmm. all more than a one-to-one -one motion ratio because it's just simple engineering. You can take this suspension and you can make it do different things by changing that motion ratio, changing that leverage and changing the way that the fluid moves around the shims and, att and attacks these compression and rebound valves. It slows the fluid velocity down. You have less pressure in the fluid. So you have less cavitation, the shocks happier and by God, the suspension runs better. And what yeah. most guys think is you just, You've got more suspension travel. Well, you do. But if you had the same suspension travel, let's say we did a, a trailing arm and we still had 16 inches of travel and your one-to-one -one motion ratio had 16 inches of travel, you're going to ride better on a trailing arm. It's going to give you a better performing suspension setup just by doing that. So I think that that's going to be something that's, that a lot of the listeners and stuff will really like. Um I think that th those couple things are, are going to be some stuff that guys will go back and they'll read or they'll research or they'll, you know, tear into their vehicles and they'll kind of look at it for their own, you know, own knowledge. And seeing a couple of those diagrams, I think, really helps out with kind of proving that point and kind of explaining some of those things. I don't claim to be an absolute you know, suspension tuning God by any means. There's guys that make me look silly when it comes to suspension tunes. Um, I definitely consider myself um, more advanced than 95% of the people that are out there. Um, yeah. But there's only a very small people, a small group of people that really understand all the suspension that goes into this stuff and all the tuning and stuff. And I'll just, I'll basically leave it as, you know, when it comes down to tuning a suspension, Spend a lot of time working on what I've shown you. Try to understand the concepts. Um, but 
a good suspension tuner is a really good amount of money because the amount of time that you'll have into trying to figure out how to do all this stuff, I promise you, you can pay somebody and it'll be a lot easier on you. But yeah. at the same exact time, I don't think that's what this podcast is for. I think the podcast today was kind of to, to help people understand the fundamentals. And I went into some of the fundamentals, but I feel like I also went into some of the, the, you know, more complex suspension tuning stuff. And I think a lot of guys who are listening to this will probably really, really pick up on a few things that have been bugging them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you've done is you've, you've lifted the curtain really um, because now, you know, you mentioned that not only is there a time factor that goes into shocks, but there's also an equipment factor as well, that there are specialized tools to get in there and that your, your average Joe Ryder, you know, if they do get in there, which I would probably recommend people don't get in there if they don't know what they're doing. But, uh, you know, anyone that may get in there, I feel like they now have an idea of, OK, I took the shock apart and here's I, I see the things that I expected to see. Whereas, right. you know, previously someone opens it up and they're like, I don't even know what I have here, you know, and they <laughs> yeah. destroy shock on the way out, too, which is always a bad thing. But yeah. um, I, I, I think all of that is very useful. Again, I say it in all of my technical talks here. I personally am going to have to go back and listen to it because uh, there's a lot that's going to marinate there. Uh, we yep. did have one question that came in. How does uh, shock fluid viscosity and shock fluids uh, just in general, what's actually in the, the shock oil itself, how does yep. that come into play? It's a huge difference. Um, so picture the little diagram that I was showing you before mm -hmm. and the piston, every piston that's out there in a shock is going to have uh, holes in it. I say every piston, but I've actually seen <laughs> some that don't have holes, which is pretty crazy, but that's desert truck. And anyways, you've got holes in those pistons. And the viscosity of the fluid means that the, the molecules of the oil are larger or smaller, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, the amount of fluid that can go through that hole at any given time is reduced with a larger viscosity. So what that means is if you put a heavy oil inside your shock, it's going to stiffen up the shock. It's going to basically make it so that you know, the viscosity of the oil is trying to cram through those tiny little holes. And if mm -hmm. it can't do that really fast, it's going to make the shock really stiff. It's basically mm -hmm. going to get to the point where the fluid can't jam itself into that hole fast enough. There's a bunch of technical terms that go into it. I don't want to get into all the yeah. super technical stuff, but the grand scheme of things is that the oil can't shove through the hole fast enough. Uh, a great example is Grab a quart of 5W30 and pour it out of the hole. What happens? It goes really fast. <laughs> Grab a quart of Lucas oil and pour it out of the hole. What happens? It goes really slow. And it's yep. a similar size hole. you got to squeeze it out. It doesn't want to go through that hole really fast. That's what viscosity does. So majority of the shocks, we're going to target a lower viscosity. We're going to target a five-weight oil. We want that oil to to go through the shock really fast. We want basically the shock to be able to... Uh, have passages that allow that fluid to go through really fast and hit the shims and go around the shims and then rebound quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Guys who have monster trucks, you know, they're probably going to run a really thick oil because they want that fluid to meet, uh, to reach basically a terminal velocity where it cannot go through that hole any faster. And it basically locks the shock down and causes it to have a ton of resistance and they don't mm -hmm. bottom out as quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, it's, it's so funny. 
you can tune against your oil. Oil can play mm -hmm. such a big factor into all of it that it essentially, I mean, ruins everything you've done because yes, like absolutely. You said, if, if, if it's just too thick of a syrupy oil, it just defeats the purpose. Uh, and, you can't and, push it through the shock. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, yep. And my other question that kind of followed that one in, in my, my last one is shock maintenance. Um, yes. You know, I've seen our friend uh, Phil uh, Licciardi, Licciardi, I forget how you say his last name. Licciardi, yeah. He's always posting uh, Liberty Mountain Fabrication, for those who know that. Uh, he uh, He's always posting pictures of foamy shocks and shocks that haven't been serviced in a couple of years. Um, what is a reasonable time for just the regular guy who runs one single coilover? When should he either send his shocks off or should he get in there, change fluids? What, what do you think about that? I would say the average guy, you need to get in there every year. Um, a racer, I would get in there every couple races and start changing or, or just checking everything, making sure. Um, it, it never fails. Every set of shocks that I get that come in, um, they're almost always – what's the word for it? Um, neglected. <laughs> Somebody <you> <laughs> has basically not worked on those shocks in so long that the parts are rusted together. And yeah. it's just because it's uncharted territory. Um, you know, I do a lot of shocks here. Um, I don't, I, I don't want to take away from anybody's livelihood. Honestly, you know, you're going to get a better service and a faster turnaround sending your shocks to Phil Licardi. He's an amazing guy. He does really awesome tuning. Um, you know, he's a top-notch dude in the shock tuning industry. Um, he's a big Radflow guy. He's on the same team as me. If you look down, you know, yeah. Team Radflow. You, um, you know, and I always try to send guys to him because he's just a great, you know, he's, he's, he's great with knowledge and he's great with what he does. And that's his main priority. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I do it for all of my racers and I do shock tuning for the guys who buy buggies from me and I do it for guys who are friends and stuff like that. Um, but every time I tear apart a, a shock, it's basically ruined on the inside, it seems like. Yeah. And and you see it more with certain brands than other. And there's probably a reason why I'm wearing the shirt. Um, yep. You know, they're just good shocks and they work really well. And, and there's, you know, what I call the top three and there's, you know, you got King Fox and Radflow and those are kind of the top three guys that do really well. And um, if you buy those shocks, you'll have a great experience. They don't leak down. They don't have problems. But, um, you know, I, I feel like if you're going to just be a weekend warrior or a trail rider once a year, man, you need to go through them. You need to pop them off, have them serviced. Uh, the Walker Revan shocks that are on all of the razors man it never fails they are full of oil every single time the fox yeah. shocks that are on your razors they have a needle valve they have like a needle that goes in the end of the shock that actually charges the nitrogen um and i don't know why they got rid of the schrader valve and they went to that but they are terrible um every shock that we get that's more than a brand new off I, we've we've had them brand new off the showroom floor with no nitrogen in them because the the stupid valve leaks and what mm -hmm. we do is we take them out and drill them, tap them, put a, a Schrader valve like, you know, all the other shocks on the planet and we put them back together and nitrogen charge and we're good to go. Um, we didn't get into nitrogen. I mean, you know, yeah. there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into nitrogen. Nitrogen um, is a big deal when it comes to a lot of shocks. So nitrogen has a couple different things that it does. Um, nitrogen does affect your spring rate. And you'll hear guys say that nitrogen doesn't. Um, if you see that, just basically quit listening to whatever they have to say um, because you can take, you know, there there's, there's air shocks out there and their job, like the ORIs, they mm -hmm. literally lift the entire vehicle off the ground with nitrogen. 
So when you have a shock and you increase your nitrogen pressure, effectively what you're doing is you're increasing the amount of pressure inside the shock and it's trying to push the, the rod out, right? Mm -hmm. And whenever you're trying to do that, it's lifting the vehicle. So the more nitrogen you have, basically you're going to be adding spring rate. But nitrogen right. doesn't act exactly like spring rate, right? Mm -hmm. Springs are um, 100 pound spring is a for every one inch, it's 100 pounds. But nitrogen doesn't act like that. Nitrogen is more, uh, if you looked at a chart, it, it's it's not a linear pattern. It's more of a curve, right? So mm -hmm. as you increase the shaft, in, you push the shaft into the shock, the nitrogen is going to increase the pressure exponentially versus just linear. So, so what you run into is nitrogen actually does pay a big, play a big role in how the suspension reacts and how it feels. And it's a super simple way to test it out. If you're watching this podcast and you're just, you do want to check something out, take your nitrogen and drop it down to 50 PSI and run it across the field and then go and put it at 300 PSI and run it across the field. And you can't tell me that it doesn't feel different. It's completely different feel. Yeah. And, you know, but, but if you have too low a nitrogen, you get what's called cavitation inside the shock where the, the pistons moving back and forth, the pressure increases on the oil right at the, at the compression of the shims touching the fluid. It compresses mm -hmm. right there, going through the holes and hitting that shim stack. And it basically turns into a gas because so much pressure. Well, mm -hmm. if you increase your nitrogen, that doesn't happen until you have more pressure. So guys who are out running in the desert, they have to run higher pressures than guys who are running at slower speeds. Mm -hmm. So it's it's one of those things where nitrogen absolutely does change the way a shock feels. It's necessary to stop the cavitation inside the shock. If you have too much, it feels springy. If you have too little, it's going to feel really gushy. So there's a perfect spot inside that shock. Most yeah. manufacturers recommend 200 PSI. So if you're in a scenario where you're just, just going to put some nitrogen in there, put 200 PSI, go drive the vehicle around and you're going to have a certain feel and then you're going to start tuning, but make sure you always have the same nitrogen because changing nitrogen is going to give you a different feel. Um, I want to touch real quick if I can on an emulsion shock versus yeah. any type of remote reservoir or reservoir shock. Yes. Um, if you don't know what a remote reservoir or a reservoir shock is versus an emulsion shock, again, we have a video on uh, YouTube and then just go and type in my name and type in rock rods and type in, you know, whatever. You can start watching those videos, but it talks a little bit about the difference in shocks. An emulsion shock has oil and nitrogen in the same chamber. And whenever the, the shock is moving up and down, it froths the fluid immediately. So what do you get? You really get what we were talking about earlier. You, you get the, the difference between a piston moving through straight fluid and a piston moving through fluid that basically has oil and nitrogen mixed together. So if you think about your hand moving through liquid, like you're in the pool and you're moving mm -hmm. through liquid, it's got a lot of resistance, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you move your hand through air, it's easier. Well, that's, that's a good way to explain what happens whenever you introduce air or nitrogen into your shock chamber. It becomes easier to move your hand or your piston through that shock. And because of that, an emulsion shock is always going to have um, 
bigger shims to create the same amount of uh, resistance inside the shock as you would have with a remote reservoir. But because of that, you don't need to worry about cavitation in an emulsion shock because by definition, it's already mixed oil and nitrogen and, and it's a slurry. It's a froth. So mm. in that scenario, I only put about 75, 100, 125 PSI in an emulsion shock. And if I'm running a, a, a bypass shock, a remote reservoir shock, I'll increase the nitrogen because I want that shock to be able to move through solid oil the entire way and not cavitate. Yeah. So there's different, you know, and, and a lot of guys, they'll, they'll have like a shock with a bypass. So you've got like a coil carrier and then you've got a bypass. And mm -hmm. if you have that scenario and you put 200 PSI in your coil over and 200 PSI in your bypass, You've just screwed yourself because now you have a ton of nitrogen in a shock that doesn't need it. Yeah. And now you have, guess what? You've got a ton of spring rate. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's, it's so it's so crazy that, that that the story just continues to unfold. You know. Oh yeah. yeah. The, 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 it's the, like Pandora's I, box, man. It takes many yeah. years to understand all this stuff and understand like in what scenario you would do this and what scenario you would do that, why you would want this over this, why are you going to drill a hole in your piston or not? Why are you going to use a, a flutter stack? Where are you going to put your, your springs in relationship to your crossover rings, what your spring rate should be, what your, you know, your, um, uh, just, it just all of it. I mean, it's, it's just, it's it just endless, you know, when it goes, boils down to it, you just kind of have to yeah. start studying. <laughs> it's tough, man. Yeah, absolutely. And this is so uh, just to kind of close it out, um, places to study this topic is um, the Rock Rods technical yeah. videos. Absolutely. Excellent place to get started. It's where I got my foundational understanding of how the suspension works. This episode of the podcast uh, will be an excellent example uh, to, to get up. But um, not only that, you guys are still constantly putting out new tech episodes um, recently, you guys did wiring, and before that, you did a, a a one on limit straps. So I know that all the all the very innovative things that Busted Knuckle is doing, um, you guys are going to continue to put videos out for that, and that's an excellent resource. I really, really, you know, limit straps. They seem so simple. They seem so straightforward. Watched your video. I realized that there's dimensions to how you can use them and how you can alter them in different situations. So awesome that you guys are putting that information out there. Awesome, man. I definitely appreciate it, Jesse. Yeah, we've, uh, we're really, you know, our goal for Busted Knuckle is not just to sell a bunch of stuff. Like our goal, and Matt will tell you the exact same thing. And, and, and Jasmine, we're, we're basically trying to improve the off-road industry as a whole. And in the way that we have to do that is we have to share knowledge. We have to make people better off-roaders. We have to make people enjoy the experience more because the more people that we have that enjoy the experience and that go out and have a suspension that drives properly and that feels good and that works properly and the more knowledge that we can put into people's pockets, the more people we keep in the off-road industry. And, you know, the, the better it grows for everybody, whether you're a a guy that's out there just trying to make a living and, and you're trying to build four links and, and, uh, or a guy who's putting on lift kits or whatever. I mean, you know, all these people in the off-road industry grows everybody as a whole. And, and I feel like just passing on that knowledge and helping these guys get to the next level really does do what we're trying to do. And, and, and we're just passionate about it, man. We live it, we breathe it. I live in my shop. I, you know, I'm on the second story and, <laughs> I get a, I get a wild hair. I come downstairs and I'll put, 
you know, open a set of shocks and I'll play with them and I'll, I'll be out here at 10 o'clock at night, run around tuning buggies and stuff just because I, I want to learn. And, and I feel like helping people out with that um, is, is really what we want to do as a company and we want to make people better off roaders. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of times people will reach out to me and uh, it's kind of those things where, uh, you 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 don't have it's it's not necessarily competition in the normal like business sense. We all are going to rise together. All the machines are going to get better together because one oh. machine gets better, the others are going to get better. Uh, and 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 that is true for knowledge and experience and uh, everything across the board. I, like I said, we all rise together. And yep. I'm a big big fan of people that have that mindset like you guys do, um, especially with all the information that you guys put out. Uh, all the content that Matt puts out, just, you know, doing silly things in the Jeeps and things like that. It's always a good time. Yeah. Um, I'm so thankful that you guys are here because you guys, especially in the last, you know, uh, recent years here have really taken a, a charge and a really big press forward into uh, expanding, you know, the tech, not only technology, but just the the off-road presence in in the world, really. I mean, you guys with your international endeavors and things like that, you guys are just trucking right on. So uh, I'm very thankful that you guys are around and uh, I'm thankful you took the time to explain this. I'm going to have to listen to this probably four or five more times and uh, right. I'm going to stare at the car for a lot longer and, and make everything uh, kind of set in over time. And uh, I'm excited. I'll just say it. I'm, I'm very, very excited to, to go back cool. and listen to it. Uh, so Jake, thank you for your time. Uh, yeah. anything else you want to say before we close out? No, I mean, you know, we touched on all the big stuff, you know, and, um, and I think that everybody who's out there, who's watching this or listening to this is basically gonna, you know, they're, they're going to realize that suspension is a very difficult thing to learn, but mm -hmm. it is the spot that you should spend the, the majority of your time, because right. if you take a vehicle that has a thousand horsepower and you send it up a hill with a terrible suspension, it's going to get outrun by a 500 horsepower rig that has a good tuned suspension. So you really need to spend time on the suspension. Uh, you know, bustedknuckleoffroad.com. You can get everything from, you know, shocks to bump stops to bump stop cams, limit straps, trailing arms. I mean, we've got it all. And, um, and we provide a service of just helping people make decisions on what's the right thing to buy and what's the wrong thing to buy. And we're not going to just sell you something because you need to have it, uh, or we're not going to sell you something because we want to make some money. We're going to yeah. sell you what you need, um, and give you good, solid advice. So check us out, man. And, and we're going to do the best we can to make everybody a little bit better. Absolutely. Well, Jake, with that, we're going to end the broadcast. We'll stay in here and chit chat for a second. Thank you everyone who is tuned in with us live over the past couple hours. And uh, thank you, everybody who's listening to the audio version. Have a great night. Appreciate it, everybody.
Super Grip ATV. Uh, Super Grip ATV, if you don't know, is pretty much taking the entire market by storm right now. Super Grip ATV K9 tire. Uh, it, it's just, I mean, I know you've heard of it. That's how that's how confident I am. The Super Grip ATV K9 is a rugged all-terrain. ATV and UTV tire designed to get you through the most extreme terrains. The K9 features an 8-ply rated radial construction with excellent rubber compounds for your on-road and off-road adventures. To expound on that a little bit, uh, the on-road and off-road, if that's the situation that you find yourself in more often than not, I personally would highly recommend the standard compound. That's the compound that I run. It's a little bit more firm than their intermediate compound, but it performs excellent. It performs just as well as every other soft compound tire I've ever had. Now. The other side of that coin, the intermediate. Uh, the intermediate tire is a softer version of the standard uh, standard material tire, standard compound, excuse me. Um, it's just gonna provide you more traction in the rocks, but the life expectancy, although very long, will be slightly shorter than the standard compound. The K9 is the ultimate control on or off-road. All K9 tires come with a Kevlar option. Kevlar is a synthetic fiber that is about five times stronger than steel. Kevlar, when used in tires, is uh, incredibly, incredibly strong because what it actually does is it lowers the weight when you pull out all that rubber and the extra steel belting and, and rubber belting, however the company chooses to do it, the Kevlar actually makes the tire lighter and stronger. Kevlar's ability to deflect glass and other sharp objects defend the tube against puncture, which makes this already extremely tough sidewall and extremely rugged tire even stronger. I highly recommend it if your budget can go for it. Go for the Supergrip ATV K9 Kevlar tire. You can check those out at supergripatv.com, Supergrip ATV on Facebook and Instagram, as well as reach out to your favorite retailer. They're a hot commodity, so they may not have them in stock, but more is always coming soon. The show is also brought to you by Dinojet. Dinojet has supplied me with a stage two power package for my Polaris Razor. Let me tell you, I have never had a clutch upgrade system that was so easy to install and really didn't need any alter alteration after the fact. Every single clutch kit that I've installed previous to my Dinojet kit, it took a long time and it wasn't exactly what I wanted by the time it was all said and done. It just never seemed to hit the bar or never seemed to hit the mark. Uh, some of the features that you can expect when you get your stage two kit like I did, you can expect cooler belt temperatures for a longer belt life, optimized back shifting, faster acceleration from your vehicle, and you can adjust it for different terrains and different tire sizes. You make those adjustments in the clutch flyouts. So one really cool thing, and probably in my opinion, the coolest part of the entire thing, is that your car becomes, your clutch system becomes forever tunable. You never ever have to worry again about having to purchase another clutch set or ordering different weights for the application you're gonna use. Dynajet sends you a boatload of weights and magnets and all kinds of other things to make sure that if you make a move from 30 inch tall tires to 37 inch tall tires, they've got you figured out and you have it just by changing the weights. 
You can also expect to see performance gains. Their stage one package already gives your UTV an extra boost, a 15 horsepower gain, uh, just using their performance tune. The stage two makes sure that your UTV's hardware can handle all that power. Their clutch kit not only allows for faster acceleration, but they also create, like I said earlier, cooler belt temperatures. Also, between the Power Vision 3, they can hold multiple custom tombs at one time and their unlimited customizable clutch kit, your UTV will become equipped for any adventure, whether it's the racetrack, the dunes, or rock crawling. You'll be moving through any obstacle with ease from one day to the next. That's DinoJet.com, DinoJet Research Inc. on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out through them through their website on the support and also DinoJet Matt on all social media. Our next sponsor is Infinite Off-Road, home of the 25-year You Break It, I'm sorry, <laughs> 25 year, you break it, they replace it warranty. Infinite Off-Road is my oldest sponsor. Always glad to have these guys on here because not only do they make an extremely quality product that I personally have never had to have warrantied or anything like that, but the warranty is always there. The thing that really gets me is they cover accidental damage. Say for example, me, a UTV guy, I'm in my Razor, I've got some lights on the front of my bumper, they're out in the open, they get exposed, and all of a sudden exposure means they get hit by a tree. That is covered in the warranty. If I accidentally run my car into a tree, I will get warrantied lights. Let that sink in, folks. Infinite Off-Road manufactures rock lights, uh, light whips, wheel rings, light bars, light pods, wiring and power controllers, and all applications for UTV, Jeeps, and trucks. So this can go on your tow rig, and this can go on your crawler, and it can go on your UTV. The rock lights are the brightest, including a red, green, blue, and independent white light, white light unit within the rock light. I highly recommend them. They're very, very cool. Their whips are really, really cool. And their whips actually run off of the Rocklight controller. So it's an all-in-one system. Infinite Off-Road has been super cool too because not only have they stepped up to give you guys the, one of the best products ever, but they believe in the show the same way that the rest of our sponsors do. They've offered you a discount code of 10% off, code word ROCKS at checkout, R-O-C-K-S at infiniteoffroad.com, Infinite Off-Road on Facebook and Instagram. Last but not least, I have to give a super big shout out to our newest sponsor. Diddy's Big Block Race Shop joins the Racing on the Rocks family. Diddy's Big Block Race Shop, which is on Instagram and Facebook, I highly recommend you guys give them a follow. They offer a variety of services nationwide, specializing in suspension tuning, shock maintenance, full buggy builds, or finishing out your buggy build, wiring and plumbing, and truly specializing in the final touches to help you complete your rig. Now, some of the suspension services are including, but not limited to, shock tuning, which is on-site tuning sessions that are available, shock revalving, send your shocks in, valve your application to your specs, and even full repair and full rebuilding, tear down, clean, replace seals, any damaged parts, and fresh oil. Uh, Chris over at Diddy's Big Block will also have specced shocks that you can buy in a complete shop application or shock application for your rig. 
Coilover Springs, he can help you get set up with correct spring rates for your application as well. And speaking of buggy builds, he does roller packages, two or four seats from partially committed racing. Those are the chassis that he uses with your components of choice. He also offers full turnkey builds, once again, a partially committed racing chassis, or if you have a chassis that needs to be finished out, they can take it all the way to completion. On the wiring and plumbing side, complete buggy wiring with cleanup and straighten out existing wiring or starting with a blank canvas. Brake and hydraulic systems including hydraulic lines built in house, cut to length and crimped to fit properly. Brake lights ran using braided lines where needed and hard lines built to fit cleanly. He also will do cooling systems. This really is your one-stop shop if you're looking to have your buggy finished out or if you're looking to have your shock serviced, which are very rare, two very rare things to find on the East Coast. So Diddy's Big Block, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Diddy's Big Block Race Shop. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. And one more thing before we close out, they are your number one source for Mark Williams off-road parts. They've worked with Mark Williams to help expand them into the off-road world, and that includes 14-bolt spools for the GM 30, 35, and 40 spline options, yokes for 14 bolts, Atlas transfer cases, Dana 60s, and Ford 9 inches, full-flow axle shafts and dry flange kits, 14 bolts, Dana 60s, and 70s. Lightweight brake kits for 14 bolts, Chevys, and Ford Kingpin knuckles, uh, just about everything. And even custom unit bearing cups to accept an 05 and up Ford unit bearing. 300M and 4340 axle shafts and brake kits to go with them. So pretty much everything you need. If you need something for your full size buggy or if you need your shocks tuned, this is an excellent gentleman to do business with. I have did business with, excuse me, I did business with him before he became a sponsor of the show. We were already in discussion and, and, and the bridge just got built there. So I highly recommend, just from my experience, dealing with Chris over at Diddy's Big Block Race Shop.